Hello and happy holidays and welcome to another exciting and, you guessed it, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, Danny Lobel, and today is a great episode because I'm going to talk to the very first comedian I ever saw live, Al Lubell. Uh, despite the fact that his name is similar to mine, we're not related to our knowledge. Uh, his name is L-U-B-E-L, mine is L-O-B-E-L-L. Uh, but other than the fact that we're both, uh, Jews, and I suppose all Jews are related, I don't think we're any more related than that. A few quick things before we get into the episode. One, uh, we reference at some point in the episode that I and my brother told Al a story about a tea room, but you don't hear that story, so I'll just tell you very briefly that we told him a story about, uh, the time that I pulled a prank at the St. Regis Hotel in their tea room, and my brother and I got kicked out. It's a good story, but for another time, because I really want to get you guys to the interview. And also, uh, in honor of the holidays, there is no sponsor today, so we can get to the episode very quickly. But I will say I have a lot of gratitude and thanks to our wonderful ongoing sponsors, Stand Up Records and Dan Schlissel, for supporting this show um, relentlessly. I don't know if that's the word, but he's been doing it for a long time, and we really appreciate it. So even though there's no ad from Stand Up Records this week... I want to say, go to StandUpRecords.com and buy some stuff for the holidays. Go pick up some CDs, records, all kinds of merchandise that they have from great comedians, including me. I don't want to say, hey, I'm a great comedian. I feel like I am, but this isn't supposed to be like me like being egotistical as much as I'm trying to say, go get my album, please. I really need the money. Uh, it's called Some Kind of Comedian, and it's available at StandUpRecords.com. As is Mark Marin's early records, Lewis Black's early records, uh, Doug Stanhope's, Maria Bamford's, Hannibal Burris, so many more. Go to StandUpRecords.com. There's a plug as a thank you from me to StandUp Records for the holidays. For the holidays, StandUpRecords.com. I didn't put out an episode last month. It's because I was robbed at my barbershop. I'll tell you more about it next month, but it was pretty traumatic, and it's it's a story. It's a story in and of itself. So um, I just want to get you guys right to the episode. Here it is, a very interesting and elongated special holiday episode for you, me and the wonderful, brilliant Al Lubell, right after the intro song. Enjoy. Welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. So, wow, has anybody filled you in on the show at all? No, but you asked me that question just a second ago. <laughs> is that okay for me to, like, break the, uh, I'm making this more real? Like, this is more fanciful. It's a pot. Yeah, it's, it's too, a showbiz. It's, I don't want to destroy it, showbiz. Right. You're taking, you're showing people behind the scenes here. I don't know. I don't know if we want to let them in, let them in on how everything works. It's all about presenting things as an illusion. Right. It's magic. Which is actually a funny lead in to this interview you were one of the very first professional comedians i ever saw one of two and the other one was patrice o'neill and when i saw you i was blown away and i'm still blown away when i see you but i, rem I remember 
the second time I saw you, you did the fir- same jokes as the first time I saw you. This is before mm-hmm. I had any concept of how being a stand-up comedian worked. And I remember being like, wait a minute. These are the same jokes. I was caught in the illusion that, you know, comedians present that we're just coming up with it on the spot. It's just, this is these are the funny thoughts of the day. Yeah, a lot of people think that. Sometimes people think, you know, that you're know, just coming up with them on the spot. I don't know if I thought that when I started out. I don't know if I even thought about it. But this brings brings up a thing. Maybe that's why. I remember the first time I ever met you. Do you did, did you come up to you? Do you remember coming up to me? I, I don't remember it, but I probably did. Yeah, you did. And we st- we sat at the bar at Stand Up New York. I remember sitting there, and you came up to me. Now this might have been after the second time you saw me. Or I'm guessing the second time, not the first uh-huh. time. Do you want me to say this? You yeah, can, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not, say anything you did say you know you're not, you're not funny you said me yeah and i thought maybe you were joking but no i said really really yeah you're, you're not funny and i got a feeling maybe it was sort of like a you look young you were probably what just started college or i was uh, i would have been 16 oh even 16 i thought it was maybe a teenage yeah. kind of like testing thing yeah but you did say that and i was thinking wow i mean like that's pretty gutsy to say that to someone's face uh-huh. And I think I had done well. I would have remembered if I had done bad because I would have, when you said that, I would have been like, oh my God, I did do bad. So I probably didn't do bad. Wow. But I don't know what that was about. You know, you don't remember that? I don't remember it at all. Okay. So now I feel bad. Should I feel bad that I brought that up? No. Not? This is a problem. That's interesting. I, I don't I don't even remember it to give you any context to it. Hey. But I have to assume, knowing what I know about how I felt when I first saw you, that either A, I was joking with you and trying to create some kind of comedic awkwardly get a comedic banter going with you not knowing how or maybe i was just distraught that i saw you do the same thing that i'd seen you do that blew me away i don't know or it could have been the first time you saw me no the first time i saw you i remember was also at stand-up new york and the second time i saw you was also they were both at stand-up new york right and I just remember being like, wow. this." I know, is... but could you have come up to me after the first time and said that? It's possible, right? It's possible, but it's probably unlikely. I think I would have been intimidated. Okay. Maybe but I... I would have been more comfortable after the second time, or maybe I was maybe I was genuinely hurt that I saw you do the same thing twice. But I wonder why you didn't explain it there. Like, you know, when, like I, I remember there was like an awkward silence, and I expected you to say something like, I'm joking, but you yeah. didn't. And I didn't, I go, okay, well, and we sat there for a little longer because I'm not good at like, I get, when I get surprised, I'm not good off the top of my head. Like, you know, I'm just sitting there kind of stunned that this guy just did that. Wow. And you would think that in this awkward moment, you might've said, Hey, I'm just kidding. You know, you did the same shit. So I was, so that didn't happen. So I really got the sense you really meant it, but you probably did mean it in the sense that you don't think I'm a funny enough person to come up with new stuff the next time. It's very possible. I remember being so shocked. I felt like I was defrauded the second time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I remember because it, it was so extreme. I, was, I, I think the, the first time I saw you was completely by chance. You'd come in on a funniest Jewish comedian contest that I was on. Oh, which yeah. Was, okay. uh, Jeff Cole was, was producing. Where? Do you remember? At was, Stand Up New York. At Stand Up New York. Okay. And, and you did a guest set and you were like, everybody else was an amateur, but you were a real comedian. Mm-hmm. And I really had no idea about stand up comedy. The only comedian that I knew of was Jerry Seinfeld before that because of the little clips of him doing stand-up on his show. And then I started doing open mics at a Starbucks uh, in Long Beach, Long Island. And I was in yeshiva. And I really was very closed off in, a, in the Orthodox Jewish bubble. 
and I didn't know that stand-up comedy was a thing. Then there was an ad in the in the Jewish Week for the funniest Jewish comedian contest, and my parents showed it to me. I'm like, I got to do that because I thought this was a chance to meet Seinfeld because mm. I thought that I was the first one jumping on board with what he was doing. I, I really thought, okay, and I knew, I had some concept that Jackie Mason was a comedian, but I had no idea of what he did. So you entered that funny Jewish comedian? Thing? I entered And the, you had already been performing a while at Starbucks? At Starbucks, just doing my comedy at Starbucks. Okay, you thought you were going to meet Seinfeld at that show? Yeah, I thought it was the, the Jews f- come? funniest Jewish comedian. I'm a Jewish comedian, he's a Jewish comedian. You thought Seinfeld was going to be entering the contest? Yes, I, I really thought, I didn't, I had no concept that there were so many comedians. I was blown away that there was a comedy club. I thought that was definitely the only one, and I thought it was going to be the background from Seinfeld. I remember, wow. I remember really, I was really, had no idea about stand-up comedy. And it wasn't even until a few years in that I knew who George Carlin or Richard Pryor were. Right. You hadn't seen it. You had seen Seinfeld on TV or no? How uh, did you know of Seinfeld? From TV. But you were allowed to watch TV? Or? I was allowed. We didn't have it in the house. We Actually, we had um, a rabbit ear antenna. We didn't have cable TV. And it was in my parents' room for most of my childhood. And then I got a black and white one at a garage sale. So I had a black and white rabbit ear antenna TV in my room. So he was the first comic you saw on TV? Right. And my, and my grandma would tape them. And that's how I saw it. Because she's like, oh, I think you'd like this. When I'd go over to my grandma, she'd put in a VHS of the Seinfeld that she taped. And I was like blown away by it. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is so cool. Like mm-hmm. It was a brand new thing to me, stand-up comedy. Sure. So I thought he invented it. And when I started doing it, I started doing it in his structure of joke writing and form because I thought like, I thought of it like almost like uh, like swimming. They might tell you this is how you do the breaststroke, mm-hmm. you know? I was like, this is how you do comedy. Sure. I didn't realize that, that you were allowed to leave the guidelines. I didn't, that, that came later. How did you know of Jackie Mason? Um, because we met him once. When, how old when were you was, then? How old were you then? I was like uh, 11. So before you were, how did you meet him? My my mom took us for tea to Tavern on the Green. Mm-hmm. And there, Jackie Mason was there and she's like, oh, that's... But I remember feeling when I met him, like it was just like she had said to me, like, oh, uh, Yitzhak Perlman is there. You know, it didn't mean anything to me. She's like, oh, he's a comedian. You had never heard his name before? No. And, and so why would you equate it to Yitzhak? How do you pronounce it? Yitzhak? I can't Yitzhak. 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 Because I just thought he was a Yitzhak Perlman. Yeah, because we'd gone to a Yitzhak Perlman concert. But I just thought, oh, famous Jewish entertainer. Right. You know, he wasn't more exciting to me than a a violinist or a cellist. He should be less exciting, actually, because you had never even seen him. You had seen Yitzhak Perlman. Right. He was less exciting. Right. So uh, it was just somebody, my mom lined me and my brothers up and took a picture with him. And I, okay, he wasn't, there was nothing interesting about that to me. Sure. And I was familiar with all the comedians in movies, but I didn't know that there was this thing as stand-up comedy. But had you ever seen Johnny Carson do his monologue? No, never. Did you, you never seen The Tonight Show? No. But you saw it when you watched Seinfeld? I feel like a lawyer right now. Yeah, I know but, you. But well, you, you have the background. But, but, you saw yeah. it when you, but when you saw Seinfeld do his stand-up, did you see Johnny introduce him? Did you see no. the whole... You didn't even see Johnny introduce him? Well, we never watched The Tonight Show. No, I know, but that video that your grandmother had didn't have Johnny introducing Seinfeld? No. You said your, your grandmother videotaped Seinfeld? The episodes of this. Oh, of the Seinfeld. TV show, the not TV Seinfeld show. doing stand up on right, right, the Tonight right. Show. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Getting a, a, yeah. a spring thing. Sorry, thing. That's okay. Uh, should we leave that in for the realness? Right. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Or I could cut it. Maybe you should explain what I just did. 
my hand somehow my hand raised up it, i don't know why hit the mic arm and then we got a little noise yeah i don't know why my hand raised up but oh i see so you didn't i see i envisioned seinfeld from from the tonight show that's when i so first I had saw no him. idea you about the tonight TV? show sure wow i didn't even know there was a tonight show in fact i remember recognizing johnny carson when i came back to to study comedy after after performing and all that i remembered seeing him from walking into my parents' bedroom and seeing him on TV, but I had no idea the context of what he was doing. I thought it was like a news show or something. I, I you know, you see a guy at a desk with white hair and sure. as boring adults at a desk. You know, I didn't, sure. I didn't equate it to to fun or funny or or right. anything. And as a comedian, see, and as a kid, you didn't even know what a comedian was. No, you didn't even know there was such a thing. You didn't even know the word comedian. I knew the word comedian, but I thought. It was a derogatory thing. What are you, a comedian? Right, because because that's that's anytime I'd be funny in class, teachers would say that, and I remember getting very defensive, like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not a comedian. I thought it was like a derogatory form of saying clown. Right. You know what are you like a, a loser, funny person? You know. Sure. But you had no idea there were people that were comedians. Right. Until and you saw Seinfeld. The only thing I would have known, and I was like a big fan of Jim Carrey and Eddie Murphy and Leslie Nielsen all these guys from the movies. But I didn't know that there... I remember once, uh, a little further into doing stand-up, do you remember a guy named Gianni? Yeah, I know that name, Gianni. Uh, wait, wait, he was he's a comedian? He was a comedian. Gianni, what did he look like? I knew, I'm just sorry, in London I know a guy named Gianni. But no, how did? what did he look like? What, what kind of stuff did like, he do? Uh, Jewish? Not a Jewish? No, Italian. Italian. And uh, I don't really remember too much of his act. I remember it was like kind of abrasive. Mm -hmm. And he was funny, but he was like a big ball buster. Mm -hmm. I don't think and, I remember. Uh, I think if you saw him, you'd probably, oh yeah, probably. I remember yeah, that guy. Probably. So I, do you remember that in, in uh, the New York Comedy Club, they had a painting of Andrew Dice Clay. They had a painting on the wall of Jim Carrey as Ace Ventura on the back wall. Do you remember that? The back, you mean in the club itself on the stage? In the club, no, where the audience sits on the back. Oh, wall. in the back of the room. Yeah, New York Comedy. Club. Not really, because I never really. It was always dark when you're on stage, and yeah. I never really looked at the back wall much. So I was always a huge fan of Jim Carrey when I was a kid. I, I, I thought you know that that was, I still love Jim Carrey. Mm -hmm. But I remember seeing him on the wall at at, uh, at Stand Up New York and talking to Gianni and being like, "It'd be cool if Jim Carrey ever did stand up." Mm. He's like, "What are you?" Fucking idiot. Mm -hmm. Little bell. And then he like calls everybody over. He goes, do you know what this kid just said to mm -hmm. me? Mm -hmm. And then I was like so embarrassed. He's like, Jim Carrey started in comedy. He's a stand-up comedy. You dummy. You mm -hmm. numb. You know, like, he just like ripped me apart for it. I had no idea these guys did stand-up comedy. I, I, I really <laughs> thought I was part of something new. Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of a good way to enter comedy, I think, yeah. just never having seen it hardly at all. And yeah, kind of discovering it for yourself when you want to do it instead of previously being exposed to it. Maybe it's kind of a, un a very unique way to yeah have that. Yeah, I mean, I I remember telling people I want to be like, like a, a funny actor, like Eddie Murphy or or Jim Carrey, but I didn't know there was this whole thing that it stemmed out of. And so then you became like try to emulate Seinfeld. I tried. It really didn't fit who I was. The very first time I went on stage, I told a story, and that's kind of what I do now. Mm -hmm. But but somebody said, "Oh, you're like uh, you're you're a comedian." It was a it was an open mic for poets and musicians, and I didn't know what I was gonna do. And the guy said, uh, "I'll put you last." I just wanted to get on the microphone, and I, t I said, "I have a funny story." He says, "Okay, you'll go last." So I told it and it got laughs. And he's like, "You're a comedian," and I was like, "Oh, like Seinfeld." And I was like, "Okay, all right." 
He's like, yeah, come back next week. Prepare some material. So I was like, all right. I watched Seinfeld, the, the VHS tapes, and I was like, all right, let me write some stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was writing jokes, observational jokes, in a Seinfeld structure. Like, that was a formula. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's how most people I start, you know, mm-hmm. started. You get influenced. You feel that's the way. It's the only thing you've been exposed to. Yeah. You feel that's the way to do it. And then when I saw you and Patrice, my mind was blown. Like, when I went to that funny, funniest Jewish comedian thing, everybody else there, I had no idea that they were not really going to be comedians. They were people from different synagogues around Long Island or Queens. And they, um, one guy was just reading off index cards. And my brother, my little brother and I were talking about it today. I can't remember now what he said. He remembered some of the acts. He actually remembered them. Because I told him, I don't know if you remember Al LaBelle, but he was on that show. And um, Did he remember? No. Do you have any memories of me from that show? Any memories of the material? Or, um, or the sense of what you got? You said I did really well? Yeah, I thought you were... So, everything you said was so clever and brilliant. And I just remember, like, it was just... It blew my mind. And the second time I saw you, I do remember being, like... Well, let's focus again upset. on the first time. Yeah. We can. <laughs> the, uh, it was also clever. Now, would you say it was different? It, it was different than Seinfeld in a certain way? Or oh, yeah. In what way was it different? Well, it was just a different style, you know? How like, would you describe my style? Um, At least back then. Well, I thought that you were you were similar in that you were doing observational stuff, but you were doing it in a, in a totally different way. I, I, don't, I don't know if I could describe it back then because it's going back so many years. Mm-hmm. But I just remember like... Um, I just remember that everything you said was the the misdirection was great. You know, everything was just very very smart. And I really liked Patrice O'Neill for a completely different reason. I liked how abrasive he was and how he didn't seem to care. You mm-hmm. know. Yeah, I like that about him too. That's such confidence. Yeah. You know, it didn't matter. I mean, he would do he could do great, but if he wasn't doing great, he still was confident, right? Right. I just remember feeling like you were brilliant, and he was like uh effortless and the, uh, so you're saying i look like i was working too hard no i just <laughs> <laughs> no i know what you mean but he looked at but i looked effortful did i look full of effort you looked like you'd worked on it you yeah. know but, you, right. but what you said was was great right. what he yeah. said was not anything that blew me away but it was just the way he said it i see right so i was i was i was really like very impressed by both of you yeah. and uh and then I think uh, the second time well, I let's saw forget you that. was, no, in, was intentional. I wanted to see you again. Ah, and then I did the and, same. And the way it worked at Starbucks, it was the same crowd every week. So it was the same exact people that came to the open mic, mostly poets and musicians who wanted to perform, and we performed for each other. So we couldn't repeat a joke. Mm-hmm. Every week I'd write an entirely new five minutes and then throw it away. And I thought, you know, that's it. Once it's done, it's done. And then when I saw you the second time, that's probably when I went up to you and I was I was probably angry. Like uh like you're like you're a fraud, you know. I was, mm-hmm. I was probably that's I Instead can't. of looking at the positive, well he did come up with a great set. He's just repeating it, but that doesn't yeah. mean he's not funny. Yeah. He's just repeating it. it doesn't mean he's not funny. I didn't see it that way. <laughs> <laughs> you what you should have said to me is you're not a funny guy the second time. Right. I can't believe I even did that. <laughs> You know, now I remember it more clearly. You went, you're not, you're not funny. And I, I was stunned. Uh-huh. And I looked at I went, what? He goes, you're not funny. Said it again. Uh-huh. Me, I was like, whoa. And I didn't know, I'm not prepared for that. I wasn't prepared for these, a statement like that, especially. <laughs> so 
you know, I'm I'm not a I'm not a cocky, <laughs> confident guy. Like uh, uh-huh. if I was cocky and confident, I'd say, fuck you, you know, what the right, fuck right, you? Right. Who the fuck are you? That's what your guy Gianni would say. Right. The, even if he didn't know you. Yeah. Say, who the fuck are you? Yeah. Get the fuck out of my face, faggot. Yeah. No offense. Oh, no, no. Politically incorrect. Not knocking gay people. Okay. My point is, though, <laughs> I just sit there and take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and I was stunned. And I kept talking to you a little. And then I, I'm thinking I was really angry. Yeah. But I didn't know what to say. You know, because you have the right to say that. Yeah. You have the right to have your opinion. <laughs> That's right. I can't I can't force you into thinking I'm funny. So I really had nothing to say. But I didn't want to walk away either. I felt like a loser if I walk away. I didn't know what to do. I just sat there. And there was kind of like an awkward silence. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just, I remember that distinctly. Off on another track, this happened to me on a cruise ship. I, it's connected to this. Is uh, I did a show and sometimes on a lot, I struggle a lot on cruise ships when I, I haven't done them in a while, but uh, sometimes I do okay. But this this was a typical show where I kind of split the crowd. You know, some people are really getting it and other people aren't. And I was toning down my act, uh, not in terms of, I'm not like sexual and like shocking sexually, but I just toned down the weirdness of it because it is a cruise ship. Uh-huh. But even with toning it down a little, I'm still a little too weird in general for cruise ships. I get off stage. I thought I did okay. It was like kind of, I did okay. Not great, not hard. I didn't bomb. I thought, okay. I walk into the bar area. This tall, older guy and his wife are standing at the bar and he looks at, he says, he looks at me, he goes, hi, we saw your show. I go, oh, he goes, you're not good at what you do. <laughs> and I go, what? He goes, you're not good at what you do. And now this was a good insult uh-huh. because like, first of all, you know, it's like, again, I'm thinking he has the right to think that. You yeah. know? He's also a paying passenger. And uh, I just liked, instead of saying, you know, if he said you suck, I'd felt a little more easy to say, well, fuck you or something like that. Yeah. But you're not good at what you do. Really cut to the bone. It's like, you yeah. know, <laughs> you, truly, you, you are a nothing, you know? It's like, <laughs> and I, I was stunned by that. Like, again, I didn't have my, I just walked away. Yeah. Like stunned. And I thought I would, later I was like impressed with the level of that insult. It yeah. was damn good. Right, right. Cause it's, it doesn't even seem like it's, it's charged by emotion. It just seems like a very um, rational analysis. Exactly. Of, yeah. Right. A smart insult. Well, it's been seventeen years since I said that to you. Was that so seventeen I, years? Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll give you an apology. This no. might be the longest you might have ever <laughs> waited for one. <laughs> no, I don't think you should have to give me an apology. I mean, you legitimately were disappointed uh-huh. if this was the second time you saw me. Now, my- now, in the context of everything, I have to think that I was I was saying it out of anger. I was probably like. Like a kid who'd who'd seen magic and for the first time realized it wasn't real, mm-hmm. and and was upset by it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I could see. And how did you? I, how did I do that second time in terms of laughs? Do you remember? Or how did it go over? I don't remember, but I. I do. It was good. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I remember the second time was better. I'm joking. No, but was it another Jewish show? Is it just a show? It was just a show. I think it was just a show. I, yeah. I think it was a Friday night show, actually. It, it wouldn't have been a Friday night show. It, oh, that's right, because you're Orthodox. Yeah. It was it a, okay, it but I do remember. But no, I, I don't know if it needs, uh, well, maybe an apology is good, because like a better thing to have said to me is, you know, I saw the, I was shocked that you did the same yeah. thing the second time. That's better than you're not funny. I, I probably wasn't good at articulating my feelings. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but now that you know, I mean, back then though, 
you know, I had tons of material, but like, as you know, now from being a comedian, right. we work on trying to make it just a little better. I was probably working on a, a Tonight Show or a Letterman thing. You just try to fix things. Sure, I get it now. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> just in case you still didn't get it. No, I'm just joking. Yeah. Wow. Wow, the nerve of me to do that. I can't believe what a crazy kid I was. I was nuts. Confident. That's, uh, I would never have the guts to, uh, I've done, although I did some weird, I remember, uh, Gary Shandling, I met him uh, in 1980, uh, and I, I met him, and he said, "Whenever you, if you ever come out to LA, give me a call." And I happened to see a repeat of him on the first time on the Tonight Show in 1981. I saw a repeat of it, and he killed. That was his first time. That made him a star. Okay. And I called him, and I asked him. He was really nice to me on the phone, and I said to him, "Gary, but uh, you know, do you think you need a hook as a comedian? I mean, like Dangerfield, I like get no respect. That kind, do you think you?" He goes, no, I think you need to just be yourself. And, oh, okay. And I told my friends the story later. He goes, you said to Gary Shandling, do you think you need a hook? How can you say that to Gary Shandling? <laughs> but, uh, and I didn't know it was wrong yeah. to say that. I was just trying, I had no idea about I don't about think comedy. it was wrong to say it. Oh, I, okay. think he, I think it's a legitimate question for somebody who's curious and doesn't know how it works. Right. Yeah. You know? Again, so I was worried at your place. I didn't know how it worked. Yeah. You know? And uh, I always thought the comedians I remembered usually were, the guys that had a hook, like Joan Rivers with the, uh, what, did, what did the choking sound? Uh -huh, yeah. What is the thing she did? Uh, just like the, the disgust. I just thought of a bad joke that just, she just kind of died by choking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did she? I don't That's even interesting. Know. Yeah, I think she did. But, uh, no, but my point is that, you know, what was that thing? Oh, what did she do? Like after like Elizabeth Taylor. I know what you mean, oh. but I can't replicate it. Right, whatever that thing is. That's kind of like yeah. a hook. Or what was her? She had a line that was a catch line. Uh, I don't uh, remember Oh, that. grow up. That's it. Oh, grow up. You don't remember that? Oh, that's right. You didn't watch comedians. I, I didn't want, I mean. You never I, saw her do stand-up Joan Rivers? I did, but, right. I, but I, don't, I don't have that much of an extensive knowledge of Joan Rivers. Her catchphrase was, oh, grow up. You know, so I always thought like a catchphrase was the thing. I really learned as I went, which I think is a bad thing to do in retrospect. I wish I had that education in, in comedy going into it because I think it put me at a big detriment with other comedians and I looked stupid. And But as you know, like for every negative thing that you have, there's a positive side to it. So you yeah. had the advantage of coming in with an empty head and not being overly influenced. And Right. So, influenced and so I am uh, envious of that, of you. Oh, that's cool. But I was influenced by you. I thought I I remember writing a joke early on, like in the Al Lubell style. I really what, what and, was that? Um, it wasn't a good joke. It actually did terribly. But the style, because I remember you, you had this. I'll tell you to answer your question about your style before. Now I can now I can remember with it. You you set up a thing, and then you dissect it, and then redissect it. And you'd like strip things down off of it. Like you had a joke about, this was a little later on, but I remember you had a joke that was like, you don't need the sign to say no parking. It should just say no. Because mm -hmm. when I'm driving, I'm wondering, can I park here? You look up, no. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I tried I tried a joke like that in Al Bell style. It lasted maybe a week. Do you remember the joke you yeah. tried? Or what, yeah. What was it? It was stupid. But it was uh, aloe vera. The word vera is extra. We all know we're talking about aloe. All right, yes, right. <laughs> That's true. Why is vera still hanging on there? Right. Uh, who's vera? You know, something, right. something like that. Right. 
And that was that was my right. attempt to right. to to emulate Al LaBelle. No, I remember I had an attempt to emulate David Letterman. He had a uh before I became a comedian, but I was trying to be one, writing jokes and uh he had a joke I saw him do at the comedy store, something like a garbage truck, the sign behind the garbage truck says, Warning, do not follow. And then he goes, Well, there they go, they go to go all days. Remember the last time you got the family out of the house, all got into the station wagon and by golly, you'd follow garbage truck all day. <laughs> that was his giant. So I remember that style. And I remember trying to write a joke. A warning, do not swallow. Tide detergent. It said, warning, do not swallow. Well, there go the good old days. You know, Remember the time you'd take out the Tide detergent, half a cup in the machine, half a cup to drink, uh -huh. something like that. It didn't work. <laughs> but I was like, just, I said, that's the secret to comedy. <laughs> Yeah. Did you figure out the secret? Not, it was the secret was not trying to be other people. Right. You know, because yeah. first of all, he already has that style. What good is that going to do me? But mm. just starting out, I just didn't know what I was doing. So I wanted it any way I could get a laugh. Yeah. So I was trying to grasp at anything. I didn't have the confidence just to try to be myself. So I think the secret, I don't even know if, it, you know, is just trying as much as you can just to deliver things the way you would do it. Yeah. I think so too. I think, I think that was a big thing for me was, was, being able to let go of trying to sound like anybody else mm -hmm, and just right. accepting that this is as, as special as it needs to be this right. you know um i think you're right it's a lack of confidence i think when when i started doing comedy i thought i'm definitely not special enough mm -hmm. you know i got to try and sound like someone who is special mm -hmm. and then eventually you hit this point where you go look they're not even that special right it's, it's sure. just people just want to hear your voice or his voice or her voice. Mm -hmm. And that was that was a big moment for me. And I, I realized that maybe only maybe only like six years ago. Which is mm -hmm. and then and then and then another level of it. I, w I was like, maybe six years ago that, that kind of occurred to me and I started making that shift. And then only um two years ago I had this very weird, unique night where I had dinner with Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner at Carl Reiner's house. And um, I never, I never. Two years ago? This two years mm -hmm. ago. I interviewed Carl on this podcast, the one you're doing now. And mm -hmm. we had a good time. And he called me up two days later and he said, I want you to meet Mel Brooks. And I went there and I thought by all accounts that it went terrifically well. I never heard from them ever again. But, but that night we hung out for like three and a half hours and we had a, a great time by my account. And. I, I I said to them, I said, sometimes I feel like I'm a fraud as a comedian. Like, like you guys are like the real thing. I feel like sometimes I'm just pretending to be a comedian. And then Mel was like, it's nonsense. He's like, there is no such thing as a real comedian. I used to feel like that too all the time. He goes, what do you think? We didn't feel like that? Everybody feels like that for a while. Then you realize we're the ones frauding everybody. Uh, it is a, It is a game of fraud. He goes... We're just fooling people. And then uh, Carl Reiner said something about, I've been fooling people for over 60 years or something like that. I don't know mm -hmm. how many years it was. But you go, they go, yeah, it's just a, it's all nonsense. It's all bullshit. Don't you understand? You know, we just tell them that, that this is what it is and yeah, and that's it. I know. Well, there's and, a thing called the imposter phenomenon, which speaks to that. You know, it's a psychological phenomenon. You ever hear that, the imposter? No. No, it's just the same thing. It's just you don't really think you deserve and really feel like you should be who you are. 
a lot of people suffer from that. And it's, uh, I feel that way too. But the weird thing about me is that uh, I also felt like, I felt that thing that, uh, you know, you were talking about, you felt you didn't deserve it. So you wanted to be someone else. I felt the pressure to be other people yet at the same time, I felt I was special. It's a weird combination. I think it's the narcissist in me. I thought I was really special. Like I did feel, I never felt like, oh, there's nothing different enough about me. I thought I was special. Yet the fearful part of me was too scared to really truly be me. Yeah. And you know what? When you say it like that, I kind of feel like probably that was what was going on with me too. Right. But this is my area. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah. I think I felt like secretly I was special. Right. Or I couldn't, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyway, when they said that, when those guys said that, I never felt like an imposter since. It's I ironic. The time you really felt like a comedian was the time you got rejected and never wanted back. Right. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I've made it. They hate me. That's good. But you do feel, you shouldn't feel bad also. You said they haven't, yeah, maybe you were joking that they haven't contacted you since. No, that's not I, a bad, I wasn't joking. I was, I really. Well, that's not a bad sign that they haven't contacted you since. You, the fact that you spent three and a half hours with them is a good sign that they enjoyed it. Yeah, but I thought, I thought this was like the beginning of, of an ongoing thing. It seemed like, it seemed like I was being vetted for something, you know? Mm -hmm. I felt like they were they were feeling me out to see if I could if I could do something mm -hmm. if I could be involved in something if they could help me along with something. How did you get that feeling? Um, well, for the first twenty minutes that I was there, um, it was very clear to me that Mel didn't want me there. And how was it clear to you? Well, I just he was putting out a, a this is the way he was talking. The energy was just kind of like you could you could say I could sense that he was irritated that Carl had invited him invited me to the, to their time. Had Bet Mel also been on your podcast at that? No. He had never been on he's it. He's never been on Did it. Did he know you were coming? Did he know he Carl knew invited was, you? Yeah, he knew about that, but I think he felt like, what are you doing inviting this kid? This is our time. I don't want him here. Who is he? What's the... Mm -hmm. And when he got there, I got the feeling, I got that feeling. I didn't expect it to be that way. I thought he was going to come in and be happy to, mm -hmm. to, to meet me too or whatever. But when he got there, I was like, oh, he's going to want me out of here as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. And and then Carl kept selling me to him. He kept telling, bringing up things from our interview. Tell him about that. Do that thing for him. You got to hear him do do this Irish song. Tell him that story you told me about Hillary Clinton. He kept pushing me on him, and he was ah. He's like everything he said. He says, "Let me hear one of your." bits that you did for Hillary Clinton. I did some comedy once for Hillary Clinton when wow. I was first starting in comedy. And I, it's a long story, but um, I said, well, that's really old material. That was like when I was first starting out. And he goes, we don't care. We know old material from, we, we understand, do it. So I did the best bit that I had back then for, for Mel. And it was very tough, you know, like imagine doing an old, one of the things you're not really proud of in front of somebody who you want the most to think you're you're great sure so it was a tough situation and i i did i sold my old lousy joke as best as i could and mel kind of just shrugged he goes yeah it's cute mm -hmm. it's cute and i just was like oh he, he hated it this is awful that they're gonna he wants me out of here i can feel it and then there was this moment where i where we were talking about jazz and i knew some of the guys that he was really into that endeared him to me and then he dropped the whole cold, the cold shoulder, and and things just opened up, and it was a great time. That's I great. Felt, I felt like okay, he's not. 
I'm in. I can talk now. I can I can be myself. I can. Uh, there's there's no more like uncomfortableness. You know. So where does the vetting come in? How did you sense vetting? I well, I just felt like something was going on there. They were they were trying. He kept Carl kept saying like uh, things to Mel like, Mel, you should do a podcast. This guy does a great podcast. Why don't you have him help you do a podcast? Like he was trying to help me. He was trying to help me with something. You know, get me. He was a trying to job. help Mel. Maybe. No, but he was trying to help you maybe get in with Mel or something. Right? Yeah. And then Mel was like, nah, I don't want to do a podcast. And then and then he and then Carl had this thing. He's like, you know, I was talking to, to Mel Brooks about that song, The Inquisition, from uh History of the World Part One. I didn't I keep hearing about that thing. I haven't really haven't listened it. to it. Uh, How I love that song. The Inquisition. Anyway, so uh Carl says, I've been telling Mel he should do a one-man show. Mel, Mel Brooks sings Mel Brooks. He goes, you should encourage him. Maybe that'd be something we could get involved. you could get involved in. I said, yeah, I'd love to be involved in any way. Mel's like, I'm not going to do that mm-hmm. show. So I was like, okay, he's trying to get bring me into something here. I see, right. And, it, and then um, the next night, I, I met George Shapiro. At an event, right? Seinfeld's manager. Seinfeld's manager, and I thought, you know what? I should, I should, I should. I just met Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. Carl Reiner's his uncle. Maybe I should go and introduce myself to to George Shapiro. Wait, Carl Reiner is Shapiro's uncle? Yeah, I, I didn't know that. I think I vaguely remember that. Okay, yeah. So I went over and I said, "Hey, I'm Danny Lobel." He goes, "You're Danny Lobel. You're the Danny Lobel that Mel and Carl have been raving about." Incredible. So I was like, "Oh, something's happening." Nothing ever happened again. Mm-hmm. That was it. I I blew it somehow. I tried to get in touch after that. I got the completely cold shoulder. They, they weren't interested in talking or meeting up or anything. And but uh, I can't say that you blew it. I mean, if they were raving about you, you obviously made a great impression. Well, I thought for a while for a while it really threw me off. I thought I was on some kind of showbiz blacklist, or uh, maybe I upset somebody really high up. And then I and then I thought I'm probably not important enough to be on a blacklist. Right. Um, and then I thought, yeah, I'm sure I did upset a lot of people high up. I even didn't even realize I'd upset you until a few minutes ago. Uh, and you're somebody I love. Uh, so I probably upset at some point or other as as a stupid teenager, growing up in comedy and not knowing how to talk to people or anything, and not having been in therapy. I probably upset a lot of people. Who knows who I upset? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, two years have gone by, and I figured, you know what? I never went into comedy relying on Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner to give me a career, and uh, I just have to let go of anything that I thought might have come out of it and just accept it for what it was. And that's where I'm at now. Right. That makes sense. That sounds Buddhist of you. Yeah. It's the best I can do. Right. You know? Because uh, cause my hopes were so high, you know? It was the the rest of my life is so mundane, you know? There's nothing like that. That's just like a, a glitch in the matrix or something. But you interview a lot of well-known people, so a lot of other well-known people may get you involved in things. It never happens. I mean, I do the interview, and usually I, I think I do a good job with it, and that's it. We go on to our lives. Mm-hmm. But, but this was like... You know, I think it would be ironic if... Uh, me, a guy who can do nothing for you, decides to want to really help you. Yeah. <laughs> Alabelle keeps calling me. I, I, he wants to vet me. He wants. I just can't get rid of this guy. He wants to help me, but it's the wrong guy. Hey, look, I'd take it. Any help I can mm-hmm. get. But um, 
Yeah, I mean that that was crazy. The one person that I struck a chord with was was Carl Reiner, and he invited me for that, and and that was it. Mm -hmm. That is weird. How soon after did you call again? When you two weeks later. That's a good time. Yeah. And uh, you had his home number. Or I had his, his home number. He picked up. He picked up. He did. He, and he was very kind of like um, distant with me on the call, and said, "Okay, all right, thanks for calling." Uh, he said. It was a nourishing experience having you here. Mm -hmm. And then I hung up and like less than two minutes later, his assistant called me. I was like, from now on, all calls go through me. Uh, Carl's a very old man. He doesn't remember who you are. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's well, nice. that's very plausible, right? No, you... uh, because he, he knew exactly who I was on the phone call less than two minutes ago. He even said it was very nourishing ha for, for Mel and I having you over. Oh, I see. Wow. And so he knew who I was. It was just kind of... Um, it was confusing, mm -hmm. you know, and I thought, well, maybe, I don't know. I, maybe they just don't want me to call the house ever again. Um, I dropped off presents a few months later, never, never heard anything. Uh, and then, uh, ultimately I, I sent his assistant a message inviting him to something. And she said, uh, Carl wishes you the best in your career, but, um, we're, we're not part of your world. He will not be attending any of your events. We're not part of your world. Mm. So I, you know, I live in a different world. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I'm in your world. I don't know either. <laughs> my world's very exclusive. Right. This just might be for you. I live in it alone. Right. There are a few chickens that come around. Right. <laughs> um, well, at least you did everything you could yeah. to find out. You know. Not everything, Al. I haven't no. gone undercover yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you remember I did your podcast in New York? I remember that. Yeah. I remember I kept putting you off about doing it. Yeah, is that yeah. why? Yeah. Well, yeah. Part of it, I was angry. I still angry about that thing. Yeah. As a grudge, <laughs> I hold grudges. I hope you're not holding it anymore. No, I don't think I'll let it go. I think. <laughs> you think? I kind of miss it. I decide you miss that grudge. No, it was a weakened grudge. No, oh, because as I got to know you, I, I, yeah, I liked you, so uh, it was a weakened grudge. Oh, good. Thank you. I felt bad for my grudge. But uh, no, but uh, my point is, no, it wasn't so much that. I also didn't really want to do a podcast. And you always wanted me to do it. And that made me want to do it less, that you seemed to so much want me to do it. Really? <laughs> you know, because like, I felt like, you know, you really, why do you want me to do it so much? You know, it's like, yeah. Uh, so also, so I did it. Remember that? I remember all that. You were always asking me to do it. So I, I remember you had a, a, a some woman, I can't remember her name. Was she Mike, kind of like Micah? your co-host? Yeah. Yeah. She was very nice. Yeah. And uh, didn't you have another guy? You had a guy that sat sat there. They would sit in a lot. An older guy, maybe. Another guy. Can't remember. Or maybe he was a guy. No, I, he was some fan of the pie or something. And he was hanging out there. I can't yeah, remember. That's possible. But that was like I think two thousand nine when I did it. Yeah. So what could we possibly discuss here that we didn't discuss there? I mean, I mentioned. Well, uh, do what do you I'm, do? You remember what we discussed there? No. So, but um, I do remember one thing about uh, that was nice of you that you stuck up for me when those people hated me. What are those? Uh, what are those comics called? The uh, cringe, shock value, cringe, cringe humor. humor. Yeah. Remember those guys? Hate some of those guys hated me and still do probably. But there were they posted something online. Uh, they hated what the comedy I did and they made fun of the shirt I was wearing that I was overweight at the time and uh -huh. uh, they didn't use the phrase at the time. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like that he's overweight right now and he's fat at this time. At this time. <laughs> no one ever says that. Hey, fatty at this time. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> but uh, they made fun. that really hurt though because they got to me because they uh, that really hurt when the thing about uh, how uh, my uh, chest was flabby because mm-hmm. I didn't even notice it like I was so in my own world I didn't notice but uh, I had been you know out of shape and uh, but they made fun of that and then made fun of my own I thought I had a good set it was an audition for Last Comic Standing mm-hmm. and I did, did very well and I got a call back to the next one but these guys just viciously attacked it. Yeah. And I think you, in some way, you stood up for me. I, I remember I how remember, it was. I remember that vaguely. Remember, cause I remember, because I was in with the guys from the site, and I said that you got to take Al off that list. That's right. And I, I went to bat for you. So then they said, well, we won't take him off the list, but we'll post your rebuttal. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a rebuttal of why they were wrong to, okay. to put you on the list of bad comedians. They, so. And so, are you were you part of them, the shock people? No, not at that. What do they call cringe? Cringe humor. Right. But later on, they started a management company, and they managed me for a while. I see. It, it didn't it didn't wind up with me being a big success and staying with them? But you know. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for doing that. I should have. Uh... You, you know what's interesting is I wound up becoming good friends with Patrice O'Neill from sticking up for you. Mm-hmm. Comes back to Patrice, the, the first two guys. Uh, but I, I had Patrice O'Neill on my podcast, mm-hmm. and the conversation were was uh, who I thought the top five comedians in New York were, and I remember, I think I said Bill Burr, and I said Colin Quinn, and Dave Attell, and I don't remember the other one, but then there was also you, mm-hmm. or maybe the other one was Patrice, and... Uh, and Patrice, it was Patrice, because then he said, well, now I feel less honored that I'm on the list because Al is on the list. Wow, I didn't realize he didn't like me. And I said, why do, you, why do you say that? He says, well, I remember him saying, like, I don't have a problem with Al LaBelle, but I don't think he's one of the top comedians in New York. So I, I explained to him, I, I don't remember what I said, but I made an argument. I said, explaining to him why you deserve to be on that list. And I convinced him. Mm-hmm. I won him over. And he's like, he goes. He goes. I didn't know you had that in you. To, he said. First of all, it's hard to sway my opinion on anything. And then when I saw him, he was, uh, he was amazed that he. I don't. You know, I don't even remember if I convinced him that you should be on the list or that I that I knew what I was talking about mm-hmm. of, of why I put you on the list. It wasn't a random thing. But he he really respected the fact that I stood up to him, mm-hmm. and that I argued my point coherently enough that he was. He had to step back. Yeah, because he's a guy that never seemed to step back from his opinion. Like, he was great at arguing his opinion. And right. He wouldn't step back. Well, I don't know enough about him, but I do remember hanging out with him a little to get the feeling he was very opinionated. And that's from that point on, we were very good friends. Oh, that's great. Wow. And and it was all... I brought you two together. You brought us together. Right. Which was interesting. So there were two times that I went to bat for you. I, now, I only remembered that Patrice O'Neill one until you reminded me about cringe humor. Oh, I see. Okay, but um, that's what I thought you were going to talk about when you said when you said you went to bat for me. Oh, I see. I didn't even know about the Patrice and the other thing. Thank you. Yeah. Well, now I feel really bad that I had grudges and I hold a grudge. <laughs> I can't. I feel bad that I uh, that I said that to you. Well, maybe part of it. But listening to your brother talk about how you uh, made up teas and stuff like to the tea room. Right. So maybe that part of it you uh, you were testing me. It was a prank. It might have been a prank. I don't know now. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it might you're, have been, you're not funny. It might have been my you're my. Not, you're not funny. Awkward. I go. Way. I, you, I go. I, I watched you sitting there. This is what happened. I, I go. I go. And thanks. Yeah. No. No. You're not funny. 
<laughs> I probably, I don't know which it was, but it's it's equally likely that I was angry, that I felt deceived, or that I was really just trying to be funny, but I didn't understand how to like bust balls or something, you know? It's possible, but no, but at some point when you bust balls, you then say, hey, I was just busting your ball. If you, you, know, what you're, if you know what you're doing. Right, that's true. You didn't yeah. know the close, you didn't right. know the clothesline. I didn't know it. <laughs> I probably just awkwardly walked away like that mm. didn't work. No, you really didn't know. We both we both awkwardly sat there. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I was trying to think of comebacks. I didn't know what to do. I was full of rage. But I'm one of these people that can't express myself, especially oh, at that man, time. That's so funny. You know, so uh I didn't know what to say. And I just sat there a little. We may have moved on to another topic. I'm that kind of guy. Just blatant someone blatantly insults me and I'll sit there and keep talking to him. <laughs> Still? Well, yeah, I'm still not great at it, you know, because, like, you know, jerks caught, catch you by surprise because they're jerks. Mm -hmm. You expect people to be nice. So jerks inherently catch you by, not calling what you did as a jerk, because maybe, again, you didn't know how to do it. Maybe or, I was a jerk. Or maybe you were a jerk. Yeah. Sure. But I'm just saying, like, I've often thought about how, you know, jerks have a huge advantage because most people aren't jerks. And so most people aren't ready for a jerk. Mm hmm and so when they encounter the jerk, they're not ready. They're not thinking I'm going to, you know, and then the jerk hits you and you're not ready for it. And then I think of the insult later, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm just obsessed with the insult after the whole thing's over, you know, I can't remember a recent thing happened again where I just, uh, I didn't say it at the time. And I think all these great things I could have said, but I just never say it at the time. Yeah. Because I'm scared. I guess they scare me. Were you abused as a kid or? Verbally and uh, emotionally. Uh well, I was just an only child and my, you know, just sm wildly smothered by my mother and my grandmother, but mostly. Uh, I remember my... your one man show, you talked all about yeah. that. You came to that? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. In Santa Monica. Yeah. You, uh, at that theater? I didn't, yeah. no, I have a vague memory. Thanks for coming. I have a vague memory of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that thing and wildly smothered. So I had no sense of how to handled myself it was all my mommy was my power mm -hmm. so i was a monster at home a wild spoiled brat monster but outside the house i was this timid little scared kid because mommy wasn't there to protect me mm -hmm. so that's why i'm very timid uh, and what was your question though about you have i i asked if you'd been abused because i was yeah. wondering if that's why you were scared yes i was abused i think if you saw the one-man show about right you know, my mother would serve me food in bed until it changed my channel for me until I was 17 yeah, years old. I guess that's abuse. I, it's kind of it's, abuse. It's master slave abuse, made me into a master. She was my slave. Yeah. And she keep changing it and changing. I go, channel seven, channel nine, channel 11. Uh -huh. And then she go, go fuck yourself and storm out. Right. That's verbal abuse. Go yeah. fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah. And so she made me like the bad, I felt like the bad guy forcing her to do that. And I, you saw the wipe me thing. My mother wiped my ass until I was 12. Yeah. You know, this, uh, she never cut the boundary. That's she never, really, yeah, S strange. It's abuse. She gave me yeah. baths. I mean, she ran, she, I can't say she gave me the bath. I mean, I know this went on until 17, but I mean, she, uh, Alan, the bathtub's ready, Alan. The bath is ready. The water's getting cold, Alan. Come in the bathtub, Alan. It must have really messed you up for, for, for women. Women, yeah. Yes. Still messed up. For yeah. Them. It's tough. I mean, I feel I was very, well, I was very verbally abused as a kid. And I, I think, it's very hard for me to, um, you know, like I have to like always look for positive love, you know? And then like, sometimes people are a little abusive, like verbally abusive to me. And I, and, and I used to like be endeared to them for it. Used to what? Be endeared to them. Like if somebody was a little 
like you liked spoke it spoke down you, to me because yeah. you felt comfortable. It was yeah, your because it felt like home. It right. felt like sure. love. Sure. You know? So I, I had to like really train myself that like love is 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 positivity. Love is 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 a you know somebody talking down to you is bad. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And that's that's a tough thing because like and then people are like, oh, you're so. I remember this one comedian. Uh, he would be like, "Oh, you're such a people pleaser. You just want to you want to please everybody all the time." I'm like, "No, I'm not." He's like, "Yeah, you'll let just anybody say anything to you because you just want to be liked." I was like, "Doesn't everybody want to be liked?" But I didn't really get what he was saying. But mm-hmm. now I do. Mm-hmm. But, but um, yeah, I think you know, I think I've worked for a lot of people I should have never worked for because uh, they were they they were mean to me and I just took it. Yeah, I've done that too. Right. Yeah. You know. Same with me. Yeah, it's hard. Didn't to, stand up for myself to people. It's hard to break free of that. Mm-hmm. Have you found anything that's been effective? Uh, well, I'm seeing a psychologist now that uh, is probably the best one I've ever seen, and uh, she's it's and uh, it's cognitive behavioral therapy mostly, but I've never had that before. But really, like she explained it, it's really a relationship to the psychologist, mm-hmm. and she used to be a marine. And I ironically think I, I don't know if it's ironic, but I think that's what I always needed. I always wished I'd been in the army. Because I needed discipline, you know. The mm-hmm. army would have woken me up, you know. Uh, I don't. I can't seem keep me getting, you know, the general to change my TV channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't even know if I would have a TV in the army. <laughs> I can't see me getting the general to wipe my ass. Yeah. <laughs> general, General Adams, wipe me, General Adams. I don't know. A lot of things go on in the military. Right. From that's what I true. Hear. That's true. <laughs> but that would have been more abusive to me. Yeah. But no. But she used to be a marine. You know, so she's definitely got a hard attitude, but she's very smart. So I always kind of needed a harder kind of person. And so she's is she like that as a psychologist. Yeah, no, not like a Marine. But I mean, her attitude is a little tougher, you know, just a little no more, no bullshit. Like, you know, a lot of shrinks will put up with your stuff yeah. as a way to find out who you are. But when I'm one of these people that uh, I don't want to grow, I have a big fear of growth. Mm-hmm. So I'll just give shit to people endlessly unless they call me on it. Really? Yeah, so. Well, do you know why you don't want to grow? Fear. I, I think uh, a lot of it's just fear. I mean, I've written a movie about it. I've given it to a few people to read. And uh, it's not, uh, one of the themes is a typical, you know, fear of success, fear of growth. Mm-hmm. But just to put it, you know, without giving too much away, you know, because uh, growth leads to death. You know, we all, we're born, we grow, we die. Yeah, and somehow in my mind, I if you equate, could you could slow down the process by not growing. Yeah, like yeah, like uh, a line in the screenplay. I'll just say is you know it's uh, adulthood, childhood, and then deadhood. And I figure if I skip childhood, I don't have to reach deadhood. Yeah. <laughs> or childhood, adulthood. And then well, yeah, I'm sorry, childhood, adulthood, deadhood. Right. If I skip right adulthood, I don't have to reach deadhood. Yeah, I better change the screenplay. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, I'm just lightheaded right now. Yeah. But no, that's the way it is. So in the screen, I don't want you to think I stole your order. <laughs> Via, right no. that's mine i gave him that on the podcast <laughs> right childhood adulthood dead right so i figured and, and a very and then i read some psychology thing a few months ago that person said everything ultimately is the fear of death all fear comes down to the fear of death fear of marriage is the fear of death because you're growing up then you die everything is ultimately underneath everything is the fear of death and i felt less weird about it it's really true i mean but i have it so huge I think because I was so pampered by my mother and so protected, mm-hmm. and maybe feel so special, and or told that you're, 
you know, I, I deserve to live forever. You know, it's like I'm special. Yeah. I wonder if like cultures like the ancient Egyptians who celebrated death were less afraid because of it. Maybe, yeah. They didn't think they would die. They think, well, the, the, the rich people mummified, right? Right. So they felt they were going to live on. So, But I guess the poor people felt they were living on too. Or? But didn't the ancient uh, Greeks also celebrate death? Was it the Greeks or the Romans? They used to have the skulls and they would fill them with candles and they'd have these mm. big parties celebrating death, drinking wine out of empty skulls and i think so well i think they all did that right back then didn't they didn't they all think they were going on to a death better... parties were like white parties now what do they call white parties? you don't know about white parties no. where everybody dresses in white uh-uh. it's like a big thing now is that a ku klux klan thing no it's just like a big <laughs> campus thing i think in the colleges everybody dresses in white white shirts and white pants yeah and then now it's like spread to everywhere like i drive around uh beverly hills and so it's like steve, and, steve martin parties yeah everybody's dressed like steve martin but what, and that's just for no reason at all. It's just to called do a it. white party. Everybody sure. just dresses in all white. Right, that's nice. So it used to be like death parties, and now it's white parties. Oh, I see. Interesting. I don't know. There's probably a lot of parties in between. That... Maybe the white party is again is the fear of death because the death is blackness. Uh huh. So they're trying to unconsciously they're trying to counteract the blackness with whiteness. Yeah, interesting that everything is a fear of death. That all fear would be fear of death. Well, that's what that person, they may be wrong, but I think it's true. Ultimately, it all gets tied to it because we're, 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 we want to keep living and we're conscious, you know, and, and so we know we're going to die. And it's a terrifying thought. And mm -hmm. so we kind of block it out by having societies and bands and music and white parties and all these distractions. But it's, uh, it, it's in there in the unconscious, this terror of knowing we're going to die. Dogs don't really know it. You know, I don't mm -hmm. think animals know it. Maybe elephants do or something. Don't they go off somewhere at the end or something? Mm -hmm. But in general, animals don't know it, right? But we know it. And it's a horrible thought. Do you think about death a lot? Uh, luckily, lately, as I've gotten older, less. I do. I always, no, I always do think about it. I'm a little less afraid of it, maybe. Because uh, actually, one time a therapist said to me, well, as you're getting older, you are dying. I mean, as we keep living, we're dying and we're changing and morphing and morphing. Mm -hmm. But as you disintegrate and get older and older, where you keep dying, yeah. you know, so death is less scary to me because I, I have some experience in that area. Yeah. <laughs> I've aged. So death is less scary. I wish yeah. years ago I knew that it gets a little less scary. Right. Because there's less of me to die. I heard a story recently about a person who went to um, a terminal cancer ward and was talking to the guy who works there and said uh how isn't it hard to work with people who who are dying every day how do you not get depressed and he says we're all dying the guy said he said we're all dying the only difference is they know when he said right you know, know. we some of them might outlive us right exactly so, i know yeah it's true you know I, yeah i know we're all dying so but and i know that's the logic of it so i shouldn't put off things and i shouldn't be afraid of growth in women because i'm going to die anyway yeah in the end it's you know i figured out at one point that whether whether or not you're relig religious or not religious at the end you know what whatever happens here is meaningless to some extent you know if you believe there's another world well then this world's not that important because the other the world that come to come after this is the better world mm -hmm. and if you believe there's nothing after this then this world's still not important because you're working towards nothing so either way, this isn't that important, and you shouldn't care that much. True, but it's I don't hard know. to hold on to that though. But even if you don't believe there's another world, I don't know if you can call this 
world not that important. It's the, gives, it's the importance you give it. Yeah. It may be important to you that you love playing the piano. You want to write a great song. You're Bob Dylan. I'm not saying, I don't know what his religious thing. I think he became a Christian for a while, but forgetting religion. Mm-hmm. Or anyone that loves what they're doing. That's important to them. Yeah. Is, are things only important to the extent that there's another world and you get some benefit out of what you did here for the next thing? How do you define important? No, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just saying if, the, if there's another world after this world. Oh, then this like wouldn't a, be important because that's the important world. Because that's world. the important world. But why would that other world be more important than this world? Because it's eternal. How do you know? Well, that's what you're being sold. Right. I'm, so, I'm, I'm just saying, like, you right. know. Yeah, right. It's, it's, you're either, you either buy into the idea that there's another world after this, which is an eternal world, and this is the temporary one, in which case you're just in a temporary job. You know, it's, it doesn't matter. That's true. But you could argue that just because something's eternal doesn't make it more important. You could, this could be very important, is, you know, short but sweet. Who's to say mm-hmm. something short can't be important? Yeah, I guess so. Is it length? Is length the, the crucial thing? It seems like we value length. Like nobody ever celebrates a really short career, you know? Right, like but a if, long career, that's like people say, oh, wow, he had such a long career. Nobody ever says he had like, you know, two months of a great career. Right, but this is not a life is like, what, 80 years? But yeah, relative to the eternal thing, it's like, it could be incredibly short. But still, you could have. Even though no one celebrates a short thing, you could have an incredibly great, fun, short time. Yeah. I mean, people can celebrate short vacations. What an incredible vacation we had. Right. It was short. Or my experience with Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner, very short. Right. Little glitch in, in, in the bigger picture, but meaningful to me. Right. And, and you had a great time for those three and a half yeah. hours, didn't you? Yeah. And it's very important to you, that experience. And the only thing disappointing to me is that it wasn't a longer. Right. <laughs> it wasn't longer. Exactly. But it was great to you. So, and it was important to you. Yeah. So it can be short and important. I guess so. But it still seems less good than long and important. Right. But if you had this long relationship, you might not have liked it. And, it, and just kept having memories of that short experience. That's the short and sweet. Nobody <laughs> ever says long and sweet. Right. That's true. Right. Long and bitter. Right. Short and sweet. All right, I feel like we're at a pretty good point to get into the mm-hmm. philosophy. I think it's getting philosophical on its own, which is right. usually when I like to uh, okay. get to that. Here's the philosopher. Um, Alex picked for you a guy, Thomas Saz. Have you heard of him? No, but I could spell his name, I think. I don't uh, think you can based on the pronunciation. It's not S-Z? Go is on. It S- Go S-Z-A-S? On. Very close. Mm-hmm. You want to guess? There's one more letter. C S S Z A C S. No S Z A C Z A S Z. No. Yes, you got it. Oh really? Okay. Yes, it's S S Z A S Z A S C. Yeah, perfect. Incredible. Wow. I don't even know this guy. Yeah, that's great. I would have never got that, especially based on the pronunciation stats. Right. That's strange that my talent is in that area. Uh, well, he, he only recently died. He he was born in 1920 in Budapest, Hungary, and he died in 2012 at 92 years old in Manilis, New York. Is that how you say that? How do you pronounce it? M-A-N-L-I-U-S, Manilis, New I'm, York. I never heard of it. Okay. He was an American academic, a psychiatrist, and a psychoanalyst. He served for most of his career as a professor of psychiatry at the State University of New York, Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. 
He was a distinguished lifetime fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and a life member of the American Psychoanalytic Association. He was best known as a social critic of the moral and scientific foundations of psychiatry, as well as, uh, as what he saw as social control aims of medicine in modern society, as well as scientism. Have you heard of scientism? Mm -mm. I mean either. His books, The Myth of Mental Illness, 1961, and The Manufacture of Madness, 1970, set out some of the arguments most associated with him. Uh, and then it goes on and on. But that's just a little bit about him. He says, what you have in common is uh, that you have a show called Mentally Al, and this is a philosopher who talked about mental illness. Mm -hmm. So we already got into your show a little bit, which is, which is good because it sets it up pretty well. Mm -hmm. So uh, what do you think so far? Is there anything uh, struck you about any, anything I read or... Honestly, I didn't listen to about 80% of what you said. <laughs> My mind had flowed to something else. Yeah. But I did catch that he, the, the myth of mental illness, he doesn't believe that there is such a thing as mental illness. Uh, uh, he was also a, but in addition to philosophy, he was also a psychoanalyst. Yeah. And a psychiatrist. Right. Right. And so what were the other major points that he... Uh, I had nothing. I don't know. He Just that he'd served on a board and in a university and... And then they just read you some. How of is he works. a philosopher, though? Uh, well, I guess uh, he wrote about philosophy based on mental illness. That's what I have here so far. Right. I'll keep going uh, on the summary of. Yeah, what says. is uh, how, what is philosophy based on mental illness? What does that mean? Um, uh, let's see. Saz says the term mental illness is inherently flawed. Mental suffering is not often caused by structural abnormality like other illnesses. A doctor can point to a bad heart valve, but he can't point to a valve in the brain that causes schizophrenia. He said saying, quote-unquote, mental illness is trying to apply pathology to free will, which is a slippery slope to invalidating a, a person's humanity. We must view people as capable of choice. The physical world is determined by physical causes, but the mental world must necessarily be free, or responsibility is gone. While he says that mental illness is a myth, he does not mean to belittle individuals who suffer. He means to more accurately categorize their suffering as a failure to conform to social, legal, or ethical norms. Right. So, right. Yeah. Well, it's just to me, to me it seems like semantics mm -hmm. because, like, if someone's like schizophrenic, he's claiming, well, they're just not going to social norms. They're not, uh, you know, obeying social norms, but they clearly. But then again, you could argue with schizophrenic, they're not mentally ill. They're just different. Mm -hmm. You could argue we're mentally ill and mm -hmm. they're normal. Right. You know, so I don't think he's really saying something that profound. Right. I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, it's true. You can't pinpoint to the brain when the whole, the, uh, the whole thing with serotonin and, and with depression, you can't really do a blood test to show that you're low on serotonin, I believe. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think I just was reading a book now. It's really good on depression. By, uh, he made a book uh, 20 years ago. He came out, Listening to Prozac. You ever hear of him? Mm, uh, no. Popular book. Because I've always tried to avoid antidepressants. I've taken them for a little. But yeah. I noticed one time when I took them, they really helped me. But I never wanted to take them, you know. So Same I want to try to be yeah. all natural and stuff. But Yeah. I, I often go through bouts of terrible depression. I don't like... Yeah. I, I won't take medicine. The one time I took it, it didn't help me. It made me feel like I was going crazy. Yeah, but how long did you take it? Did you just take it for months. two days? Or you did take it a few months? Yeah. Which one was it? Do you remember? Um, 
like Zoloft or no? Or, it wasn't Zoloft. It was Wellbutrin. Maybe. Yeah, I've heard that. That could be very stimulating. I was reading about that. Yeah, yeah. Wellbutrin is very can be very. I remember like feeling like I wanted to rip my skin off. Right. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. So a lot of it, the trick is to find the right one. But you see, I wouldn't go through bouts of depression. I would be constantly depressed. That's the thing with me. Just like constantly you know, low energy and depressed and what's the point. For I how, just, like how long? Just for years, you know, just really? like, uh, and I would be better when I'm working, when I have gigs and jobs, I'm better because I'm focused, mm -hmm. but I still got the depression there anyway. But when I'm not working and not getting gigs, really depressed. And uh, so finally I, 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 I started taking something. I don't know if I want to mention the name or it's not a antidepressant, but it's uh -huh. a supplement and it has helped me. Uh, and, uh, it's helped me a little, it's given me, it's actually, the, I, I'm trying to write a joke about it, but ironically, it's lifted my mood enough where I'm considering taking an actual antidepressant. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess maybe the joke's already there. Yeah, I gotta laugh. Yeah, that's great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but really, before I wouldn't even consider the, I was so depressed I wouldn't even consider the antidepressant. Yeah. Now I'm considering it. Right. Unbelievable, it's like this bridge to an antidepressant. I had a line, which is in the same kind of vein of humor that I thought was really funny. I, I did it at the doctor's office. I'll, I'd like to run it by you. He didn't give it anything, but uh, I, I, I have asthma. And I went to this um, pulmonologist and he, <laughs> he's kind of a crazy guy, but he, he was very harsh with me for, for no reason. And he's like, he said, look, you're overweight. You have asthma. You could lose weight, it'll improve your breathing to some extent, but, you know, you're always going to have asthma. So, you know, really, how good do you really want your breathing to be? That's right. Which is a weird question. I said, I just want to get it good enough to the point where I can start smoking. Right. <laughs> oh, that's right. I, he, he gave it nothing. I thought that was a pretty good line. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. So. That's a weird thing to say to you for him to say. How uh, good how do you want it to be? It was such right. a strange question to pose yeah i'd want it to be as good as possible yeah, yeah. stupid thing to right. say yeah but yeah anyway so yeah but it's helped me i'm surprised and i i, I took it and i've been not taking it for like two months or something uh -huh. and uh it has up my mood no question about it and i now i'm thinking what an idiot that i haven't been on antidepressants for a long time because mood is so much in terms of getting anything done in life yeah you know, your mood you know, when I, I started praying again, that helped me. You know, I don't know yeah. if that would help everybody, but that helped me. And I think a lot of people meditate. And I think yeah, it's, I, a, it's the same thing. Same thing. And I, I have sometimes, but like, again, a lot of it's the depression to even start meditating. In England, I was doing it probably, although I wasn't getting that many gigs for that month anyway, but I was, I think my self-esteem was higher just being in England, just surviving on my own in a foreign country is an accomplishment for me, a scared, little timid, overprotected guy. Which was recent. I mean, yeah, this was two years ago. So I was, I remember that night, I would meditate every night for like 20 minutes. Uh, was that your first time living outside of America? Uh, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, I guess two years ago. Uh, well, I had spent the summer of 2013 in Edinburgh for a month, but that was the first time I actually moved. That's when you met my mom. Right. Yeah. And then I came back in the fall in 2013 here. But then in Fe February of 2014, that's when I moved to England for like 10 months. It's such a cool thing that there's like this whole other world that you could go to. That's what I like, another world. Yeah. I need a break from this world. Yeah. It's such a great to have a break. And I love the fact that that's the original world. Like America came from, not all of America, but most of America came from that England. This is it's, a spinoff show. Yeah, it's great to go to the original show. Yeah. 
<laughs> what made you come back? Stupid. I was stupid. I never should have come back. Uh, fear. Again, fear. It was stupid. I did. Uh, oh, so stupid. It's hard for me to forgive myself on this. Although a little, maybe, I don't even know. I don't even think this thing. You I'm like to hold grudges. Yeah. What? Yeah, I can't yeah. let go. I'm obsessive. I have OCD. I have narcissism. I have tons of shit. But uh, paranoia. According to our philosopher here, you might have none of it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like him. He's invalidating who I am. <laughs> But again, a lot of the stuff I talk about is ego, which is, I, I like Eckhart Tolle a lot. The, you know him, The Power of Now, he wrote The Power of Now. And mm -hmm. amazes me, there's a lot of people don't even have heard of this guy. I don't know. Brilliant, like he's written the, this power, he, he's a guy that can explain Buddhism really well, being in the moment and meditation, all that stuff. I'm really into the power of later. Right, right, right. <laughs> is there a book right. like that? Right. Okay. Uh, later is gonna be a lot better than now. I'm, I know, I'm I actually I feel neurotic now because I have jokes like written like that. I don't want you to think, not that exact wording, but I don't want you to think I told you a particular idea. Yeah, it's okay. But no, I have a similar yeah. kind of thing. Maybe it's a Jewish way well, of I'm thinking. Well, I'm honored uh, you know, to, yeah. to be that, thinking like you. Uh, thank you. But anyway, and I'm honored that you are, have that you think like me not that i but i think like you to whom who's to say who thinks like who right anyway the point is uh what's my point what was i talking about the power of now oh yeah well oh yeah i was talking about yeah well i guess the real thing i was trying to talk about was that i was in england last year from june from like uh march until September. I came back here in September. And what bothers me about it is I wasn't going to do, I was like agonizing whether to, in June, I was there from March to June. And I went to visit my mother in Florida, who's uh, in assisted living out there. I had a round trip coming back to England, but I couldn't decide, should I come back to England? Because they weren't going to be able to get me much work because that's Edinburgh time. Uh -huh. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to stay when I was there in March. So they didn't try to get me work. So they said, if you come back, there's not going to be much work because you haven't given us notice. Mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't know if I wanted to go back to LA. I really didn't want to go back to LA, but I already had this round trip ticket. So finally I ended up deciding uh, to use the ticket to go back to England because with me, it always comes under money. I already paid mm -hmm. for the ticket. So I went back to England and they said, look, we're not going to be able to get you much of anything. And it's true. They didn't get me hardly anything. Mm -hmm. But I luckily left my suitcases overnight at a, a, a funny comedian's name. I can't, can't come come to me right now but uh i left my and she helps with uh booking the edinburgh free fringe mm -hmm. so i ended up doing it last minute and uh i put the thing together since i had been doing comedy for years i had a lot of material i organized it it didn't wasn't that hard a thing to organize but i ended up doing doing well with it and uh word of mouth actually matters there if you're doing a good show people talk about it and you can actually draw crowds and i did it very i didn't have the money i only paid 100 pounds for like posters mm -hmm. i had no publicist no nothing i did it without my age my agent didn't i wanted to do it on my own i hired just like two street people to street team people to hand out flyers mm -hmm. and word of mouth luckily worked and i was it's the free fringe. You don't have to pay any money to get into it. So it's easy for the to get an audience because they don't have to pay money. At the end, you ask for money in a bucket at the yeah. end. So I actually made a profit like 1,500 pounds or something from doing it. And plus audiences kept getting bigger and bigger. Like the room was packed. Wow. So it actually worked. I've never ever had a show where word of mouth got audiences there it was yeah that's like a legend yeah you know, word of mouth that i thought that died years ago it did except in edinburgh where people go to see comedy <laughs> it's unbelievable it's like the loch ness monster it's a yeah. it's a mythical thing word, yeah. of, word of mouth unbelievable yeah and so it was over then i had but i had bought a, in july when i was getting no work 
I paid for a ticket to go back to America the beginning of September because uh. I was scared I wouldn't get work. And instead of thinking to myself, well, what if you do well in Edinburgh? Because positive thoughts don't enter my brain because uh -huh. of depression, I think. Yeah. Positive yeah. thoughts don't enter. It's just fear-based. Yeah. I never said to myself, hey, what if you do great? Why, maybe you should hold off on buying a ticket. No, it's like, better get it now because the price will be too expensive if you have to leave Edinburgh right after away. You know, so I bought the ticket and then I did really well. I got nominated, not that meaning, winning an award or nomination necessarily means anything, but I did get nominated for a best performer of a solo show by the Comedians Association. So that helped get people, maybe it helped, I don't know. My point is this, the, the thought never entered my brain when I, uh, I knew I was 50-50 on whether to stay. I thought to myself, well, should I stay in England? And I would ask people. And the best advice I got from people were, from one person was, well, wherever you go, do your best. If you go back to LA or you stay in England, just do your best wherever you are. Mm -hmm. And I really regret coming back to LA. I mean, I should have stayed there and seen what I could have gotten out of it. Well, you can probably still go back. I'm yeah, sure I'm some of that still exists. Yeah, I'm sure. Some of what I, you created. There. I got to go back, yeah. But uh, I'm just mad I didn't stay when I had the momentum and... You know, I could have been doing Edinburgh again this year, and that really is the truth. You know, it's it's, it's a flooded market, LA, with comedians just flooded. Yeah. You know, it's not flooded like this in England, and there's more job opportunities. And uh, and I was becoming, I was getting better as a comedian. I was a better, I am better now, I think, than I've ever been. A lot of it's Edinburgh doing three in a row, where you just keep getting. You get to do your own show. You see, you feel this confidence to try right. out new things because it's your thing. It's very gratifying <clears> to feel. Well, you're a guy who you said you're afraid to grow, right? But then you grew against your will. Yes, and it must have felt very gratifying. It, it did to, to, to experience some growth. It did. Yeah. What is it like when you go to your mom and she's in assisted living, and the roles I imagine have reversed from? Yeah, I'm wiping her now. Yeah, and changing uh, the channel or right, whatever. Right. Yeah, that's right. Well, and that's a kind of a growing thing too, you know, forcing me to be the adult a little, you know, and uh, that is kind of a growth kind of a thing, just being forced into that. Being, yeah. But she's still an adult too. I mean, she, the sister living is not a nursing home, you know, I mean, she's still, you know. It's another forced growth. You didn't want to enter adulthood because right. it's before deathhood. Right. And you're kind of being forced into it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's forced. And I'm kind of grateful in a way that I have been forced into it. Yeah. A little. I've grown a little against my will <laughs> but uh like you said it was against your will yeah all right so al do you want to read a paragraph for us from thomas Saz? no oh, okay right. I well that's it. the end of the show <laughs> <laughs> mental illness is not literally a thing or physical object and hence it can exist only in the way other theoretical concepts exist yet familiar theories are in the habit of posing as objective truths. In the past, expl explanatory concepts such as deities and witches appeared not only as theories, but as self-evident causes of a number of problems. Mental, mental illness is widely regarded in a similar fashion. What is meant when we say someone is mentally ill? This notion has outlived its usefulness and now functions as, functions as a convenient myth. Our adversaries are not demons, fate, or mental illness. We have no enemy whom we can fight or cure. What we do have are problems in living, whether these be biologic, economic, or political. Mental illness is a myth whose function is to disguise the bitter pill of moral conflicts in human relations. Basically, he's saying, you know, once you've labeled something to a certain point, it loses its purpose, right? It and, and, and attributing 
just saying, oh, that person's mentally ill. That's not helping anything anymore. It was saying, right, basically like people would attribute things to witches. And we, we realized that it's nothing to do with witches. People are just saying, oh, that person's mentally ill. He's saying mental illness is not a thing. It's not tangible. We can, just, just saying mentally ill means nothing and it does nothing. That's what I got out of it. Right, but I don't know. I know, but I don't think he's quite right about that. I think witches is a big, way bigger stretch than mental illness. I mean, uh, mental illness is easier to define and, and prove than witches. But he was saying once something becomes like a social norm to say it, it becomes accepted as truth. So, so everybody at the time of witches would accept it as much as we accept the term mental illness now. Right. Uh, but again, there's proof of mental illness and not proof of witches. I mean, you have proof where if you give certain people certain drugs, their personality changes. You have uh, schizophrenics and, and psychotics. I mean, what would you call those people? Uh, eccentric? I wonder if he felt these truths weren't substantiated well enough about mental illness. Like people, the, the proofs rather. I, maybe he felt the proofs were, were weak. Right, but if you see somebody... Uh, I don't know, if you see someone on the street urinating and screaming, the devil's got me mm -hmm. and the devil's trying to screw me in the ass and he's pissing on the street and he smells like crap, uh, I don't think he's having a bad day. <laughs> you know? Sounds like a fun day. <laughs> right, right. I think he's got mental illness. Yeah. I don't think he's got witches. I think he's got mental illness. And just because you can't look in the brain and go, oh, it's over there to the left. Look, there's the mental illness. But, but maybe, because you can't do that. Maybe at some point people would say, oh, he's got a demon inside of him. Yeah, that's the old way of looking at it, right. demon and witch. So now but the I, new way would be, oh, he's got mental illness, which is still maybe too vague for our philosopher. You might, have, you might feel like at a certain point you, you should look at him and say, oh, he's low on vitamin D or something, you know? Right, but which again, they haven't. wouldn't be if he's homeless, but. Right, you can't correlate. They have never been able to, they can correlate some people like manic depressive or bipolar, what they call it now, is to low lithium. Lithium helps bipolar people a lot. But I still think while we don't know everything about mental illness, there are certain people that you just, I mean, I think he's not even get going there, but I don't think you can, you know, you can get the whole argument, what is mentally ill? You could argue right. that the guy pissing on the street, screaming, you know, the demon's trying to fuck me. Mm -hmm. You could argue that he's healthy and we're sick. Or Donald or Trump is mentally ill. Or right. or anybody could say, anyone you don't like what they have to say is mentally ill. Right. But aren't there, yeah, you could argue that, that that's all wrong. Yeah, that'd be crazy to say, like, it all comes down to value judgments. I mean, clearly everyone has psychological issues. But then it gets in the sense that, yeah, then it gets to a whole thing where you say, well, what is mental health? And are you going to say, well... You can't be narcissistic. Narcissism is not healthy. So mm -hmm. narcissists are mentally ill. And then you, you, you're going to create this like absolute perfect person I with think that's no what issues. He, what, I think you're arguing his point. True, now. that's his point. But I don't think when you go to the extremes, he's right. When you go to like psychotics or, or guys running around murdering people, uh, like the guy that murdered people in Dallas, right? I think mm -hmm. he had a history of mental illness. When you run around killing People. What if they're There's just all vitamin deficiencies? Like whatever you're taking now that's helping with depression, Sammy. It could be. Or, but what are those vitamins affecting your brain? Maybe those, it's maybe it's affecting your blood. Maybe it's affecting who knows? Affecting your blood, but I mean, isn't it all which which is affecting your brain? Like the whole system. Like how do you? I think that's what he's saying. It's like invisible. Like it's not like you see mental illness in the brain. 
So maybe it's not a brain thing. Maybe it's maybe it's just illness. Right. It's not. It's illness. But where would you? Right. You're right. It might be something else. But when you see drugs that can treat things, and that I know the, a lot of these drugs you can't prove that are, are treating the brain, because you can't like they can't still can't test that serotonin. Yeah. In your body. They can't. Uh, so maybe it's like your parking sign. You just need the word no. Or here you just need the word illness. Take out the word mental. It's too wordy. Right. Maybe. Maybe you don't need the word mental there. It's possible. You know, I wish I had eaten more before I came here because I'm really lightheaded. <laughs> Sorry. And so I can't, I don't know if how clearly I can think right now because I'm hungry. Yeah. Whenever I get really, really hungry. Yeah. And the watermelon's good, but it's got no protein in it. Yeah. And like protein helps balance against. I'm trying to think if I have any protein, but I don't. I just have boxes of I, soup. That's like, I feel honestly, I feel kind of mentally ill right now. <laughs> because, but, you're, because your blood sugar's low. Yeah, not mentally. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Blood sugar low. But isn't that relate to the brain? Like I know I, I'm extra depressed when I wake up in the morning. I think some of it's related to the blood sugar being very low. But wait, blood sugar low, that's got to be affecting your brain. But you wouldn't call that mental illness necessarily. You'd call that, yeah. you know, I don't know how you define. But what would you say a schizophrenic person is? Just kind of, just ill? We don't know where in the... Yeah, we don't I, know what part of the body's ill, but it's affecting, but it's I all bet, affecting something. I bet they. I bet when they figure it out that it's going to be traced to the brain. But we don't know. I, that's I his doubt point, if, I guess. Do you think the kidney really is going to cause schizophrenia? Well, maybe, it could maybe. could be. I mean, I don't, I'm not a doctor. Right, it's possible. That'd be interesting. And then, but so like, let's say he's right. So you're just ill. What's his big point? Just like, he's, it's just taking out one word. Well, I guess his big point is, is what you said before, which is like, if you define something as mentally ill, then you're defining something as mentally healthy, which is a dangerous road to go down to say that person's mentally healthy. That right. person's mentally ill. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, that's true. I'm starting, so that, I'm starting to like his point more as we go. Right. That's true. That's interesting. So that guy's, uh, yeah, so you see a guy urinating and screaming on the street. The guy just seems kind of sick. Yeah. But he's not mentally illness. It's possible. Maybe you're right. All right, so we have uh, three quotes here. I always ask the guests to read them, um, and we go over them one at a time. Will you read us the first quote? Anything. I'm afraid you'll say no again. Right. Interesting how you involve the guest. Why do you choose not to read it? Because uh, I read the first half of the stuff where I read it about the guy and everything. Was, so it was, seems like a 50-50 on reading. That's a, that's a mentally healthy choice. <laughs> okay, quotes. There, <laughs> there is no psychology. Yeah, can I ask? You are, you are heavier than me, obviously, right? I mean, unless you're mentally young. <laughs> right, right. How do you do that? No desire? You just watermelon? How do you do that? I'm thinner than you, yet it's, I'm hungry. It's probably like a camel who keeps a lot of water in his hump. Mm -hmm. And they're, the camel's not thirsty in the desert for so long because there's all that water supply. So you got all the food. I've got food storage that I'm working off and you don't. That's a good point. Yeah. My mother would want me to be in your position, safe with food in me. <laughs> uh, there is no psychology. There is only biography and autobiography. Yeah, again, he's trying to, this one, he's trying to get away from the mind and just going into your history objectively which is biography and subjectively which is autobiography and uh, right he's just trying to get away from the focus on mind in a way i mentioned eckhart tolle to you earlier the power of now and he's very much of getting rid of the mind getting rid of thinking and being aware just aware like you know when you look at a mountain you don't have to think that's a mountain you could just look at it and uh, absorb the mountain without thought it's hard to do it's hard to do but people can do it you know and you're thinking i'm not thinking that's a mountain right now right you could do How that do but do then, that? but event yeah you could think that but eventually you could calm down the brain and just take in the mountain 
eventually. That's sort of like meditation, mm-hmm. being present with the mountain and aware of the mountain, but not thinking the mountain. Are you still registering it as a big rock in your head, or are you just looking at it as a, as a form? Is it like abstract art? It would be, you'd have to experience it in your way. There's no way I could tell you. In fact, I've never even done that with a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I've been kind of lazy on that. Could you do it with a hill? <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's best to start with a hill. You, you don't want to open with a right mountain. Can go right to mountain. Yeah. It's best, a grain of sand is really the ideal. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's more about being, I know I've questioned that myself you know, awareness. Uh, he also talks about being aware that you're aware. No, that's the highest level, aware that you're aware, but not thinking, not letting your brain rattle off. And I'm just making this connection, like he's always talking about quieting the mind because uh-huh. the mind is related to ego. And ego, not in the sense of being cocky, but in the sense of who I am, it's your mental narrative, your story. Uh-huh. And uh, that's our problem, he claims. Too much. You need a little of the mind to help you focus and get through life. You know, like I'll plan this, I'll do that. But he said, we're way too connected with the mind, who I am, you know, uh, envy, jealousy, how I stand in the world, your own personal story. Uh-uh. He talks yeah. about being present in the now of just being there, you know, just being present. Is he? Yeah, he's very, very present, this guy. I mean, he uses his mind sometimes, but. Did he check his book sales? <laughs> yeah, sure he does. But I heard a story. I, met, I, ran, yeah. I ran into a guy in a coffee shop a couple of weeks ago that's into, uh, he does uh, healing, mind, mind body healing with people, how your mind is connected to your body uh-huh. in terms of healing. But he told me that his publisher of his book also published Eckhart Tolle's big hit. And he told me that all the other guys would call, who did these kind of spiritual books would a lot of times call and go, is the check coming? When is the check coming? And when he, he published his big hit book, the checks weren't coming for a while. And Eck, Eckhart Tolle would call in and the guy said, it's not here. And Eckhart Tolle would be okay with that. He would, there was no sense of like he needed it, he had to have it, he was frustrated. Uh-huh. And he said, this guy sensed that I just really, Eckhart really is like that. He really is disconnected from ego. Until his rent bill comes. Yeah, but he doesn't have a problem now with it. Yeah, you know, he's got right. tons. Of, he's had such success, and I've also wondered. I'm about being that. skeptical. So I've skeptical. Yeah. I brought this up to him too. I mean, it's yeah. easy to be in the now when you got money now. Right. You know. Yeah, sure. But he claims he was like this before. He you can't money. really tell your landlord that. I mean, like, right. don't worry. If it comes, it will come. Right. I know. You know. I know. I've thought. I've tried it. What was the joke? I wrote something. I never tried it, but something like. Uh, I'm. I'm so in the now. Like I'd be focused so in the now, and then and, the, and landlord knocks on. The door and asking for the rent. I go now. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that reminds uh, me of another joke of yours, when you, which I love, um, where you're at a magazine stand and you, there's a sign that says "Do not read," and you pick one up and right. you start reading. And the guy says, "Hey, can't you see it?" it it says, do not read, and you go, I thought it meant the sign. Right. That was, I remember that joke from yeah. years ago. I yeah. love that joke. Yeah, thanks. And then you had a joke about a donkey, which I liked a lot, but I don't remember what it was. Yeah, there were a few jokes with that, the thing with uh, the donkey. I don't know. I'm afraid to say it here. Is it bad? I mean, it's my, I hate to give my material away on a podcast. Well, Nothing who, I'm who's going to take it? Right. It's <laughs> had a lot of parts to it, but you may have liked this part, the thing with... Uh, I said, I'm really scared to the guy. And he goes, don't worry about it. No donkey has ever fallen before into the canyon. Right. And I said, well, 
that would relax me if I was heading into the past, but I'm heading into the future where there's no record what donkeys do. Right. Was that the one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it went on with other, yeah. like, do I look deaf? You know, I'm screaming at him for help. And right. he turns and he goes, do I look deaf? And the thought occurred to me, who looks deaf? No, it was, a, it was that's good too, but it was yeah. the first, it right. was the first one. Right. About, I remember, I, in my in my memory, there was a donkey on a cliff. And yes. that, that's, that was. Yeah, they had other parts to it, you know. With, uh, we're climbing a mountain. I just remember yeah. this guy on the edge with a donkey. Yeah, thing. <laughs> Future donkeys is what you're worried about, not past donkeys. Right, exactly. You were living in then. Right, right, right. <laughs> I have another line I want to do is, uh, my psychologist says to me, I have a sense that you focus both on the present and on the past at the same time. Is that true? I said, now and then. It's <laughs> great. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so that again, I, I sense he's moving away. It went off. I sense uh, he, he's moving. He's also kind of talking about that e in a way, ego, like getting rid of thought. Yeah. The focus on the mind. So I got to find out more about that mind body connection thing. Because I'll tell you, when I go to therapy and it goes really, really well, mm -hmm. I walk out and all my senses have come alive. Have mm -hmm. you, do you experience that too? Like I start, I can smell things. I can smell. I can smell the plants when I walk by them. I, I experience the world in a, in a much better way. Like some blockages are gone. Do you have that? No, I'm not that healthy. Wow. I'm more blocked, I think. I've never had that. I've, I've had that where I walk out of a good That's therapy good. session. And I'm like, oh, it's a, I, how did I not realize all day that it's a beautiful day? And then I'll actually start smelling like, not actively, but like as I walk by a plant, I'll smell it. I'm like, how did I not realize that that plant has a smell? Right, that's great. Well, yeah. they see they got you out of your head. Yeah. They got you out of the spinning thoughts of your head that you're able to take in the world. Yeah. And that's what Eckhart Tolle is talking about and Buddhists will talk about being in the moment, present, out of your head, the, the repetitive monologue yeah. and all the worrying about the future and regretting the past. Ditching the programming and right. just experiencing. Right. Taking it in. But it's interesting that I don't really, I'm so far gone that I have never felt, I noticed anything extra after therapy. Well, it could still happen. That's Maybe. a good thing because you, you have something to look forward to. I already know that can happen. Oh, that's true. That is true. But you, you can do it again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so did we do that one? Or, I don't know. Yeah. So I could see it's very connected in a way to that Buddhist kind of thing. There's no psychology. There's only biography and autobiography. That's not a good point of mine because biography and autobiography also deal with thoughts in your brain, who I am. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know. But I see his point. You just are a person with a history. Yeah. I think it's his point, right? There, you, there is no, I don't even know what, when he says there is no psychology, what does he mean by psychology? No mental illness? Does he mean any more than that? I don't know. I, I can only speculate like you. So there, I, I kind of don't like it when people just throw quotes out. It's almost like a little painting. They're giving you a painting. You're supposed to imply your own meaning to so that I, painting. Do you not like paintings? No, not really. I really, I've never been a person that like artwork yeah. and like occasionally things stick out to me. Like uh, I was at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and I remember those something, the Cezanne's apples or whatever, uh -huh. uh, something look at, but you know, the only artwork that hit me was shows my negative, everything's negative at me. I went to, see, I think it was the huge painting of George Washington crossing the Delaware, uh -huh. up, you know, huge. And I'm looking at this thinking thing, I can't believe they don't have this behind glass. Anyone could, I could just take a pen right now and ruin this painting. Yeah, and give you power. Yeah, give me. 
Well, I found a few months later, some guy did ruin a painting. So my thoughts just go to fear and the negative. Right, you want to read the next quote? Okay. In the animal kingdom, the rule is eat or be eaten. In the human kingdom, define or be defined. Any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think it's just going back to this whole thing that we were talking about with ego. Like it's, in a way, that's what happened here today. Like I kind of had to define your first interaction with me because before that I was being defined and I didn't even realize it. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know what was, I had not the slightest recollection of any of that experience that you remembered so vividly. Mm -hmm. So I defined and I had to redefine. Mm -hmm. Otherwise I would continue to be defined from the first definition. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's sort of like uh, what we're always doing, you know? And it goes back to his first quote, like we're kind of writing our own biography as we go, you know, based on our actions, based on our interactions. Mm -hmm. You could say that I was mentally ill when I first met you, mm -hmm. but maybe I was just a poor communicator. But you seem to agree with him that there is no mental illness. I'm coming around to it. I'm coming mm -hmm. around to the fact that it might not be mental illness. I think it could be just illness and uh and a lot of it is maybe not even illness a lot of it might just be misunderstanding and a lot then i i i go to the question of is there anything illness implies there's a health like you said you noticed i implied that yeah and uh i don't necessarily agree if something's ill if you telling me you know you're not funny you're not good who's to say that's ill you know, I mean, again, you might have seen me that night where I repeated everything right, so you right. had a point. And even if you did feel that way, you could argue it's a very rude thing to say. Uh, why not just think it? Why say it? Uh, but again, is it sick? Is it, is it, uh, you forget even mentally ill. Is it just ill, physically? Is it just ill? Are you ill? Who's to say what ill is? Who's to say what health is? Mm -hmm. So I would argue that, you know, uh, I don't even know if there's such a thing called illness. There might even have been a way to interpret that where somebody was trying to be nice to say to somebody that you're not funny. Mm -hmm. well, not, you're not, that, not that that was my, right. I, I don't even you know, know it, where I was coming from with it, but I'm, I'm imagining there could be a person, like maybe the cruise ship guy or something, mm -hmm. who genuinely had a nice intention in telling you. Like when he said you're not good at what you do, maybe in his mind, he's like, I can help this guy to find another path because I genuinely don't feel he's good at what he does. True. And, and maybe he wasn't trying to hurt you at all, but rather trying to redirect you because he thought it was what was best for you and he wants to do what he thinks is best for other people. Not that that's right of him. Right. But, but I mean... My Looking point, back my, on it, I agree with you. I, and not that you're even saying it, but now I've changed my mind. I think he was really trying to help me. Really? No. <laughs> like that that easily <laughs> <laughs> no but i could see i could see you could make that argument but i think the odds are so low right because of his tone the tone the fact that when i just stood there actually i stood there in shock and looked at him there was like a beat and i remember his wife was there i kind of looked at his wife and i looked at him and i don't i did say something i'm trying to think what i said i said something well you're entitled to your opinion is what i said you're entitled to your opinion uh but I think someone really is trying to help you would then say, hey, look, I'm just trying to help you. Well, I really if, think. Well, let me lay, throw another layer on it. Let's say he was, what is it, Asperger's. Mm -hmm. Let's say I think he was just ass. Yeah. 
What if he was autistic or Asperger's or right. something else like that we would define as mentally ill? But in his mind and in his heart, he had good, genuine intentions. Now, we could say that's a long shot. But then there's also people who are what they call on the spectrum, you know? There are a million people who are just poor communicators. Or they're not emotionally in tune with other people. Which is probably accurate to my first interaction with you. I was definitely not emotionally in tune with you. And I don't think I... I know that at that point in my life, I certainly wasn't intentionally trying to push people away. I'm sure I was trying to come from a good place in some respect. How can, no, really, can you, how can you be coming from a good place if you look at somebody and go, you're not funny? The good place it could have been would have been trying to connect with you through comedy. Trying to like, trying to like get into the com comedian club, like to, to sort of, <laughs> you know. I guess I could see it if you've never been exposed to comedy and you're in your own insulated world Man. and you're only 16. But even with all that, it's just such I mean, an antisocial thing to say right. to a comedian that just got off stage. Right. You're not funny. I, I think I was so out of touch. No matter what my intention was, it, you know, to have said that to you, I'm sure that I wasn't trying to actively make enemies. I'm sure that I wasn't trying to actively hurt someone. So Could it have been you were a little threatened that I was funny and you were trying to put me in my place a little, yeah. a little adolescent put you in the anything you're not is, so hot anything is possible because I, I i don't i don't remember to 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 tell you could have a, has that kind of thing come up in my personality over the years sure uh, it's not a dominant force in in who i feel i am but i mean it could have been anything i don't know do you have that a little in you like or back then did you that kind of competitive kind of like not to my memory you know it was funny i i remember one time I was sitting with Jackie Mason years after that, but still I was a young comedian. And I was so thrilled to, to be able to to sit with Jackie Mason. We did it a lot. I hung out with him a lot. We were sitting in front of Aubon Pan. And uh, I remember he said, uh, I think this is going to make you insanely jealous, but I got a, I got a gig coming up at Westbury Music Fair, and uh, it's almost completely sold out. Eat your heart out. And I, I remember laughing, and he's like, don't pretend that you're not viciously jealous about the fact that I'm playing for a huge audience and you're playing for nobody tonight. Mm -hmm. you got, you're going to go to a comedy club and, and play for a few people. And I was still kind of laughing, but I was like, I was starting to think, I, I don't know if he's being serious or if he's <laughs> joking. You know, at first I thought it was all in humor. <laughs> and as we continued on, it became very apparent that he really thought that I was jealous that he was playing Westbury Music Fair, where to me it was just like, of course you're playing Westbury Music Fair. You're Jackie Mason. Why Why shouldn't you be? And of course I don't think I should be. I'm a few years into comedy. Right. But in his mind, because he's so competitive, he had just assumed that I was the same way. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't. Right, exactly. But you could argue, maybe possibly with me, who is no Jackie Mason, at that level, you could argue that, you know, maybe you saw in me, maybe you were a little... That's the vibe I get from you. It could be my paranoia back then. But my vibe was like you were trying to knock me down a peg. A little like, but again, it could come from my own paranoia. I was a shy, scared kid. So I, you know, a scared person. So maybe I'm extra sensitive to people. Yeah. You know, extra, take it extra sensitively. But maybe you were a cocky kind of 16 year old that was, uh, you know, a lot of 16 year old kids are cocky. Yeah, I don't think so. No. 
I don't think so. But, you know, again, don't take it personally. I'm not trying to attack you, but no, it's an I, interesting I, discussion. I, I, I don't know it, how one could argue. I can't even take it personally because 16-year-old me is dead. Right, I know. Experiencing death every... So every, every seven years, your cells totally change. Yeah, and every version of you is dead once it's right. gone, you know? True. That guy is gone, and I'm not going to make excuses for him, you know? But I but feel I'm bad just, speaking badly of the dead. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in a relative's presence. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't, I don't know if I could buy your argument you're trying to help me. Oh, because no, I don't think I was trying to help you. I was trying to propose a hypothetical argument wherein somebody might be trying to help you. Oh, right, that other guy, the cruise ship guy. But uh, no, the cruise ship guy is still a very tough argument because no, I, I he mean, might I have I wasn't autism. even there. I'm just, I'm just trying to pose True, a hypothetical. But you're bringing up which... autism and Asperger's, which are what? Mental illnesses. And you're going well, the other way we, with that. How, that's how we define them anyway. Oh, so maybe they're just maybe physical. They're, maybe there are other kind of illnesses. People say it has to do right. with vaccines. Right. Then how is well, that, that mental? Thing has been, you know? That thing has been debunked, debunked yeah, yeah. I believe. But, but, but the point is that, uh, yeah, I could see your point could be a physical problem, but you're, you're saying he just didn't have a good, it's possible he didn't have a good way of expressing that, but he was trying to be helpful. Right. It's possible. I put it at like one in a thousand, right. you know, because there was that awkward silence. He had a chance to like say, hey, you know, hey, I was just trying to help you. He didn't. Well, I was. I'm, His wife just stood there, you know, again, it could be he's autistic. He doesn't know how to back out of this. Yeah. But, he, you know, this is a wealthy ship. You know, the odds are all okay. in favor of him being an asshole. Okay. This but, is a very expensive cruise line. But but I'm trying to make a, an argument to base this on. So we, we could say, okay, fine. Maybe he wasn't trying to help you. Maybe he wasn't autistic or Asperger's. Now, what if he was emotionally damaged? And when he saw you, it evoked something. Maybe he was threatened. Maybe he saw you and felt threatened about his own masculinity or something because you were on stage and he wasn't yeah sure that's more uh, likely so so now emotional damage emotions are what mental so couldn't you say that's mental ill i think I'm, I'm trying to make a point to this guy's argument like either way you could say that that guy was mentally ill and if you say he was mentally ill you could just write it off as mental illness so when that guy came up to you and he wanted to hurt you. Why would anyone want to hurt someone else unless they themselves are hurt and trying to make themselves? Well, I feel agree better? with that guy's argument to the extent that, I, as I said, I'm not so sure you can call anything mentally ill. Right. But oh, that then I go back on my other argument that yeah, there is definite mental illness. But then that, then you have that fine line. There's always that question: is when is a person a jerk and when is he mentally ill? Because there are tons of jerks. But out you there. could say the jerks are just mentally ill people. I, I know, undiagnosed. I know. And then you could say no one's responsible for every, anything because any, anyone that does anything bad is mentally ill. That's what he's saying, I well, think. Right, that's what he's saying is that's why we should get rid of the mental illness designation yeah. because it makes people unresponsible, not yeah. responsible. Right. And uh, But there's clearly a level, in my opinion, of mental illness where they really aren't responsible. Yeah. When really someone is really out of their mind. I think there are some people that really need, really aren't responsible. They're just out of their mind. But it could be due to physical causes. But could you say that you or I have been out of our mind at certain points in our life? Yeah, you could, well, I don't know if you could say out of my, no, because we're not psychotic. Neither yeah. of us are psychotic. So have we been, but well, I we've don't- We've been in altered states of- um, I don't um, think my act that I put you in an altered state. No, 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 I'm not talking no, no, about no. me anymore. I'm talking about me that night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying, but we've been in different states of what you might consider sure. mental health. Sure. 
like like you're mentally healthier now you said since taking the supplement so that means there was a time when you were less mentally healthy again but i hate that term healthy i don't know if this is more health i don't even know if this is healthy it's different but again but i'll I'll go with you on so if we're getting so then we get rid of the word health and the word mental (laughs) nothing which was actually how your parking joke went eventually you got rid of the word no as well right (laughs) all right but uh now i see uh yeah, but I, I'm not a big fan of, yeah, like excuses for everything because everyone, everyone's got a cause. Yeah. There's a reason for everyone doing everything. Right. And at some point, maybe shouldn't, people shouldn't be excused. Yeah. Or an apology's in order or something's in order because yeah. everyone's got a reason for everything. Exactly. I mean, you know, Hitler had a reason. Yeah. Was he know? mentally ill? Right. If well, you just said he was mentally ill, that would excuse Hitler from everything he did. I know, and I would argue there was definite mental illness there. I could make the argument, yeah. but who knows? Well, we have one last quote to end off the show. Would you do the honor? Happiness is an imaginary condition, formerly attributed by the living to the dead, now usually attributed by adults to children and by children to adults. Well, this guy is either very, he's hes very confusing in how he writes, but uh, but it's deep, it's probably deep. But happiness is an imaginary condition formally attributed by the living to the dead. Is that, first of all, is that true? Do we say the dead are happy? Are happy? I didn't know we'd do that. Well, sometimes people, they're in a better place. Yeah. People say that. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, you're right. He's resting in peace. Resting in peace. But I think the reason we do that is we feel bad for the dead person. So we Mm -hmm. want to make it seem like he's all happy now. He's resting in peace. Or he's in a better place. We know that the, he probably doesn't have any anxiety. Right. He, you know, if he's dead. That's true. No anxiety, but I, I don't think he's got a lot of pleasure either, being dead. It'd be funny if you saw gravestones that said RIA, like rest in agony. Right. For people who didn't like the relative who passed away. Right. Actually, I've written something like that. See, they're not a very, <laughs> it's a Jewish kind of Sorry. thinking. Yeah. I've never. Yeah. No, I know, but you don't. Yeah, I've, I've thought of that. But no offense. I mean, it's good. To, None taken. Uh, okay. But I know, yeah. I, what was yours? No, symbol. Rest in, right, rest in agony, rest in pain. Really? Why is it always peace? Yeah. I've never done it on a stage, but I've written. Huh. Cool. But, but no, go ahead and do it. Maybe it? we should write together sometime. Yeah, maybe. Right, right. <laughs> right. Um, but, anyway, but yeah, so now usually attributed by adults to children. Yeah, that's true. Because we say children are happy. Look how... They have, they're carefree. They don't have worries on their head. Yeah. Right? And by children to adults, they'll, uh, children will think, oh, they must be happy. They're adults. They're big people. And So he's calling it all an imaginary condition. But happiness. I disagree that it's an imaginary you condition. You think happiness is a real thing? Yeah, well, it comes from, I was reading about it recently. Happenstance is the basis of happy, the word happiness, happenstance. And uh, happenstance means kind of related to luck. Mm-hmm. Right, just uh, lucky moments uh, that you're feeling good in. Huh. But I think because happiness is like a momentary feeling, it's it's fleeting, and then you're suddenly happy, and then suddenly you're not happy. And mm-hmm. so I think it's silly to like strive for happiness because moments are always changing. You're never going to be constantly happy. If you were, then you wouldn't be happy. Probably because you'd have nothing for it to to be relative against. Yeah. You know, so. So I think, uh, you know. There's just influxes in mood. Yeah. 
there's no way you're ever gonna one is ever gonna be happy. You give up, you know. Mm -hmm. I think the Buddhist thing talks about that. There's no state of permanent. I mean, ironically, Buddhists and monks might be permanently happy in that blissful nirvana state, right? Yeah, state that they can achieve. But to me, that doesn't seem happy, and I don't think it's good for circulation just lying there that way. Oh man! Well, I'll say this, Al. I think you're very, very funny. Oh, thank you. And, uh, and uh, any, no longer in the top five, I'm sure. Anything? <laughs> well, you're not in the city anymore. It was the top five in New York City. Oh right, that's true. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me in the top five. Uh, and I completely rebuke 16 year old me for everything he said and thought at the time. I'm so uh, no, it's sorry I'm, for that guy. He's dead now, anyway, <laughs> though. So let him rest in peace. In a way, I'm trying to look at the positive. I, I do admire your confidence to do that. You know, yeah. it's a cocky confidence. I wish I still but, had that uh, kind of confidence, but used it better. But I wish it was more, if it was because I repeated, I wish you had said, what's the deal with repeating? Are you, if, to me, yeah. that's the most likely scenario. Right. Because I do remember like feeling, that was the very first time I un, that I understood. And that's what, that's what I remember. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the significant feeling that I felt I was cheated. Because I went back to see you because I thought you were so great the first time I saw you. And then you did the same thing. Right. Ironically, not, it's not, I don't think ironic is the right word, but a lot of people have said to me they'd see me again and laugh just the same and found it funny again. You're not one of those people. Well, over time I've come to appreciate how comedy works, and I, I can say that now. What, that you still would enjoy having seeing it again? Yeah. How have you learned to enjoy seeing it again? Because you see how things are honed, you see right. how it's it's told a little differently. I've come to appreciate comedy for what it is, but that was a big moment for me. That right. was like a defining moment where I where I realized that the magic your wasn't real. You know, was lot, your 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 virginity was God. I destroyed your virginity. My comedy virginity, yeah. anyway. That's kind of cool in a way. I like that idea that I destroyed comedy virginity. <laughs> yeah, maybe I have a lawsuit against you. Right. I, I remember sitting there, like, he did this. Mm -hmm. He did this already. What's he doing? He's, uh, you right. know, I thought you were just like a genius the first time I saw right. just spewing genius thought after right. genius thought. Right. And that's why I had to come out and see you again. I was like, I got I remember asking the club, when is that guy Al Lubell going to be here again? And the second time, it makes perfect sense to me that I would have said that to you, but probably just out of an emotional anger. Wow. And I couldn't look again. I couldn't look at the positive and think, well, maybe this guy really likes me and he was disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> I did that didn't occur to me. But I think out of sentimental respect to that whole experience, I should come back on your podcast and we should do this interview word for word. <laughs> how, how would we, we how would well, people know we're it? not just playing it again? We're, no. <laughs> We'll just have to we rehearse. We'll have to take a lot of rehearsal. It reminds me of a great one of my favorite Stephen Wright jokes, where you probably know it, where the guy, he's I had a dream that this guy broke into my house and stole all my stuff and replaced it with exact replicas. Oh, right, right. And I told my friend, uh, and he said, "Who are you? So this, right. Do I know you?" Right, right. Yeah. You know, I, I remember that vaguely, but now I'm trying to get it. Uh, the joke is, I know, I know, I've heard him do that. Yeah. So that he tells that to a friend and his friend says to him, do I know you? Because his friend was a, a replica of his friend. Oh, I see. It, that's great. It, it wasn't. <laughs> that's great, Chuck. Yeah, it wasn't really him. Yeah. That's great. What a great joke. See, it takes me so long to get jokes. I'm not good at great getting, getting jokes. I've been gotten better at it. Yeah. Years ago, I couldn't, I didn't get basic jokes. My brain has woken up a little. 
This makes me want to go into a whole nother half hour with you. Right, man. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I could do this all night, but but uh, the parking. Right, right, <laughs> right. The park, yeah. But but you know what? You got to just tell the person if they come to give you a ticket, you go. Live in the now, man. Right. You don't need this money right now. You don't need this ticket. Right. What if everybody did that? What if your landlord said, "Where's my rent?" And you said, "I'm living in the now. If it comes, it comes." And then, right. and then, wh- whoever he had to pay the bank for the mortgage on the house, he says, "If it comes, it comes." Whoever the bank was responsible to, they everybody just took that attitude. Nobody had to pay anything anymore. Right. Would it work? Would there eventually be somebody who says, "No, no, no it has to be right now." Yeah, because no one would ever pay anything. You know, and so, uh, in the na- and no one would ever pay, and then people would realize they got to get paid. Yeah. So, uh, I know, but it would be great if life, like life, was like that. Because people can't appre- appreciate short and sweet. Everything has to be long. You have mm-hmm. to go for the long pay. Just say it's short and sweet. You know, we're we're here right now, and that's it. But you got to you, you can't live short and sweet. Well, how does the short and sweet thing relate to the now thing? You're you're part right. of a, a a bigger timeline, right? You know whether you like it or not, right? So the short and sweet is uh, sort of like living in the now. Yeah, the short and sweet is the now, but you got to also worry about the later, mm-hmm. and you also have to deal with the then. Yes, you know. So if I was just living in the now, right yeah, now, sure. I still have to deal with sixteen year old me, right, from seventeen years ago. That guy is still affecting my now, right sure. now. Right. And also, what I'm doing right now is going to affect my later. Right. Well, you know? he he would say that you need your brain and thought to think about these things. You do, but the question is a percentage of what time. He said we give too much, way too much thought about regretting the past and worrying about the future, mm-hmm. or just even thinking about the past and thinking about wait and not being present enough. It's a balance. And mm-hmm. he, I think he says in one of his lectures he's about eighty percent in the now and only twenty percent thinking because he can afford assistance to help him uh-huh. with things and organize and schedule but he's mostly present and these buddhists are 100 percent for these monks that just sleep and they're in the now they're but uh he says humanity in general needs to be more in the now but he's not talking about you you're bringing up the extreme of just yeah. he says you do have to use your brain but it's i know for me my, I was totally wildly in my head, especially when I was like seven, I remember at 18, I was a freshman at University of Maryland and I was terrified and scared because I was this frightened little lonely child. And and I was wildly in my brain. What's this person thinking? What's that person doing? This person hates me. I'm scared of this person. Wild, looking back on it, I was wildly in my head out of fear. Mm-hmm. I had no knowledge about being present or in the now, anything like that. And so I'm a little more able now out of confidence to be a little more present and get out of my head. But I'm an example of a person that's way more in the head than the usual person due to fear, due to not being prepared to be an adult in mm-hmm. the world. Maybe at one point you'll have to say, hey, I'm an adult now. And then you'll be living in the now. Right. Because you're still, if you're still holding on to being a child, then you're still yeah. living in the then. Yes, totally. But once you once you accept being an adult and enjoy the, the present of being an adult and think about deathhood, as another thing that you don't have to worry about in adulthood, but really just give honor to adulthood in your mm. life, then maybe you'll be in the now. That's a good point. That's well said. But by the time you get there... <laughs> It'll be death at time. <laughs> no, but by the time you get there, the now will be the then. So, right. So when you get to the now, you'll be in the then. No, because by the time... I, it's only the now. He breaks up a good point. There is. Has it ever not been the now? 
it's always the now. We've never lived in the past. We've never lived in the future. It's always been the now. So by the time I get there, it won't be the then. It won't be the future. It'll be the now of then. Yes. There's only the now. That guy talking about gravestone. His his gravestone should say he lived in the then. Right, right. That's funny. He lived in the then. <laughs> right. Right, that's funny. Yeah. And I didn't think of that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good place to end. <laughs> Al, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for tuning in. Thanks again to Al Lubell. As always, I tell you, go and pick up some stuff at StandUpRecords.com. The very best in stand-up records merchandise. Have a happy holiday, everybody. Whatever the holiday is, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate, even nothing. Have a great atheist celebration if, if you don't do anything. But whatever you do, do it with some happiness. Do it with some joy, some cheer. And uh, and thanks so much for tuning into the show. If you if you want to give back to this show, you can always go to moderndayphilosophers.net. And you can now set up a reoccurring donation or a one-time donation. Both are very, very appreciated uh, by clicking the donation thing in the upper right side, I believe, of the website. It says donations. You'll see it. You'll see it. If you want to see it, you'll see it. You'll find it. Um, you could also leave a nice review on the iTunes page. Five stars are appreciated. A nice review. It's hard to get people to do it, especially if you've done it before, but it helps a lot. So go on there. If, even if you've done it before, jump on, leave a nice review, leave some stars, hopefully five, and uh, that's it. You could also write me at thecomical at yahoo.com to say hello. I love hearing from you. And I do want to say a quick thing about um, something from the episode. I want to say that I hope in, in no way did I uh, disparage uh, the great reputation of my parents, who are wonderful, wonderful parents to this day. And, uh, you know, like everybody, have their flaws. And I, I do believe, you know, there was an unnecessary amount of what I would call verbal abuse in my childhood. But I think despite that, um, everybody has their flaws and they were and continue to be terrific parents who I look up to quite a bit. Uh, so that I just felt I needed to say. Anyway, happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays. And I'll see you next time with another exciting and jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.